0: This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton.
1: McCard carrying Basing at this point. Ben Alomar, Director of Sports Analytics at ESPN. Just to next a big pop. would be like, he's just one of us, man. <laughs> That's kind of a big deal and shows you a lot about the randomness of sports. Rick Peterson, longtime pitching coach for the major leagues.
0: This is Wharton Moneyball's post game podcast. This is Kate Massey, host of Wharton Moneyball, and you're listening to our podcast. We air live on Business Radio SiriusXM channel 132 every Wednesday, eight to ten. Eastern. Enjoy this week's show. We have one guest today, so one fewer than usual. We've got a full docket of topics to discuss, and so we've dialed the guest back a little bit. But an hour from now, we'll be talking to Michael Lopez, who was poached from academia to help run. NFL Analytics. It's going to be interesting to hear from Michael. He's been on the show a number of times over the years. But between now, now and then, for the full first hour of the show, open lines, open conversation. One of us happens to be smiling a little <laughs> bit more than the others. I'm curious, fellas, what possibly could have caught your eye in the world of sports
2: well let me first give credit if i we I have to congratulate my, him. yeah yes. i went through my, my house actually there. to see since i did live in boston for five years i looked to see if i had any boston gear i could wear to honor oh man. no no no, no no i didn't, no, I didn't no, have any so good, i didn't have anything good. to wear but oh, that's all right. let me tell you what caught my eye about the world series and i'd love to get your guys thoughts on this and we talk about high leverage points in the world series and of course i've you know been shamed about momentum for years um, so you let, are shameless. about. it. Uh, I'm, I'm shameless doing. about it. But I want to talk about I want to get an, a probability estimate for you guys and see how much an impact it had. So here's what we know. In game four of the World Series, the score was obviously it was two to one uh, Red Sox leading the series. The Dodgers had won the Red Sox won the first two at home. The Dodgers had won game three. The Dodgers were up 4 to nothing in the seventh inning of Game 4 of the World Series. Um, thanks to our producer, Matt Dats, we can see the Dodgers were the only team in the major leagues this year never to lose a game in the regular season, up four-plus runs. They were 54-0, and up four runs at any point in a game. The only team in the major leagues. Ryan Madsen comes in for replaces Rich Hill. Former gives, Philly. I, I'm going to get to that in a second. <laughs> yeah. gives you see, up, he might have been my favorite
3: pitcher of the World yeah. Series, actually. Yeah. <laughs>
2: gives up a three-run home run. Now, before that, I'm not going to say 54-0. The Reds, the um, brought the, out. The Dodgers were a 98% chance to win. But that pitch and that, you know, going from 4 nothing to 4-3, had to have changed the odds of winning that game probably by 25%. Maybe it goes from 85% to 60% to winning that game somewhere in that neighborhood. And then if the Dodgers do win that game and it's 2-2, we don't have to go down to the momentum story, but they will have tied the series oh, it 2-2. Oh, would have been very different. So that play, what caught my eye, uh, Kate asked what caught my eye, that play could have easily had a 10 to 15% probability difference on winning the World Series. And, you know, I hate to say it as someone that wasn't rooting for the Red Sox, but they won fair and square. I keep thinking if that play had gone differently... We may be sitting here, and the Dodgers win the World Series four to three. Yeah, is that is that totally off base? No, I
3: don't think so. But and I think that's the beauty, the blessing, and the curse of playoff baseball. Is I feel like almost every series you can kind of point to one. I mean, some things one pivot point. Some series are just a blowout, like you know, they're a blowout or whatever. But most series that are competitive, there is that kind of one turning point or whatever, whatever you want to call it, um, that I think really. You know, in retrospect, of course, of course, in retrospect, in retrospect, for me seem to have determined for me. What's interesting
1: is the is what we're supposed to make of the statistic fifty four and zero. At that point, so the, the Dodgers are, are leading four to zero in the seventh. It's about an eighty-five percent chance of winning. Well, that's what I said. With a and that just assumes nothing about their history. So, how do we integrate the fifty-four and zero into the eighty-five percent? Eighty-five is is for all teams at, at any given time. So, a team that's up four runs in the seventh inning typically wins about eighty-five percent of the time. So, the question is, what do we take the? How do we integrate the fifty-four and zero, which is particular I'm not, I'm not to the Dodgers? Ch- I'm not going to change and, and, it much
0: because you're tempted to say, but the Dodgers are better than the average. Team, but generally, teams that are up for nothing are better. Are, are, well, I'm not that's, change, that's right. I'm not so you're not going to change
1: it much. Um, it's interesting. So uh, would you I'm do? It, it. I, well, I think you change it a little because it has to do with the closer. I mean, that's basically has, has got to okay, be a piece of the, the good bullpen, baseball. Yeah, the bullpen general. in general. The Yankees, in, oh, for many, many years, I keep reliving our ancient history, you know, for nearly 20 years, they, they, were, they, they did better than the average team, substantially better in those situations because yeah. they had a, an elite bullpen, particularly Rivera, which, would, which was so reliable. And uh, so I would give them a little bit, but 1 in 10 is probably what it, what it was at that point, not maybe 5%. Okay, yeah, so five five yeah. Yeah, yeah, like
2: yeah, so I was thinking the same thing. I was thinking maybe I'd go up to 90% yeah. um, in that case. But again, look, the other thing that caught my eye is a lot of people, and it's interesting, the point right below, thanks again to Matt Datz for our producer putting this there, people were saying, is this the greatest team of all time? Okay? And I'm just interested in one stat here. A lot of people have said, "Is this the greatest team of all time?" I don't think it's the greatest team of all time. And, but let me just say, I just find the following stat interesting: the Red Sox played 14 playoff games and were only favored in four of them. You
0: can't, yeah. you cannot be the
2: greatest team of all time if that's with the that's case. going on. No, yeah. no, no that's my question. That was yeah. my point: yeah. no is that yeah. it's hard
1: to imagine this
2: being the greatest team right. of all time. <laughs>
1: well, but, I mean, in, in their favor, they went one a, one. They won 108 games in a league in a division with with terrific teams. Yes, which is remarkable. I mean, the, the And Yankees then they, won, went through and they went through two 100 win teams on their, their way two to super, the World super, Series. They went through three really so, strong teams to win yeah, the World uh, Series. No, I'm not arguing that they're the greatest team of all time, but, 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 but we're but, trying to integrate I that, hear, that I, playoff information think, into the series. Is season. it the greatest I, but,
2: but, sum? Do we know? Is it the greatest sum of three wins? If we add the, uh, oh, no, Yankees, the
1: Yankees wins, the Astros. The Yankees won
3: 125 in no, 1998. No, 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 no. I'm saying of the three teams they beat. The the kind of win regular season win totals of their opponents, is that your, sort oh, of what you're saying? I don't even know because I think um, Maybe th- th- those Yankees that beat Seattle in two thousand and one sure. I think had an advantage there.
0: But this but this but Eric's first point undermines the second claim. If if you look at these moments, right. these moments that just a little you know, thing goes slightly one way instead of the other and the whole series turns. If that's true, and it's almost by definition going to be true when two teams of such similar status as those two teams play, then you should put less stock on what happens in the playoffs. Inevitably, you will... I get it, but it gets overdone. I mean, these the, the, as soon as the game is over, people write these stories about how the Sox did this and the Sox were so great. I watched only f- casually from a distance, but it looked to me like these teams were virtually equally matched. And the same with the Houston series.
1: Mm-hmm. I mean, when the, yeah. when
0: the best teams go through, when the greatest teams of all time play championship games, playoff games, they're not close. The best teams of all time leave
1: people in their wake. Well, wait, in baseball? In, I, I, mean, I mean like I, I've, I've never well, really watched the, the team. Yankees won 4 nothing and it was just a blowout. the Yankees uh, the 98 Yankees pretty much Yeah, did they lose the a game in the playoffs? They lost they lost one game in the whole thing. So that that's you know
3: his, I just think in baseball even the great okay, the dominant teams don't okay. just it's not like basketball right or football or, or it's football a good, it's a good
0: thing to push back on me because I first come from football where yeah, it's
3: obviously very very different
0: mm-hmm. so but you could do something like you know go back and look at so one whenever people say the greatest regular season record I'm so. I'm so dismissive of the ones and lost record. I'll at least give me Pythagorean, but really, I'd rather have some kind of power ranking, which considers not only Pythagorean but also what else Your opponents, the relative You're opponents, because right. you said, look. A- a- AL East is like really brutal division.
3: So it's, it doesn't have the Pythagorean component, but what do you think of ELO then?
0: Yeah, some a good ELO. ELO's a, too a, slow an to An elaborated react. ELO or something. Right. But ELO gives us this ability, like 538's done a great job over the years of showing us, this ability to compare across eras. If you if you like the formula, then yeah. it has this wonderful the one, quality.
2: The one thing I will say about the series also, which I'll be interested as you know, people that in Sabermetrics analyze this kind of after the fact. Is it almost seemed like these were two while I agree with you, Cade, that these were two equally balanced fairly equally balanced teams, it almost seemed like they were playing different baseball. Like um watching the games, the Red Sox in a positive sense. Would take pitch after pitch after pitch. I mean, just guys were, you know, starting pitchers. You wake up, it's the fourth inning. Guys have thrown 80, 85 pitches. It seemed like the Dodgers were playing, I'll call it modern baseball, swing for home runs. Matter of fact, there was, I think it was game two or three of the series. The Dodgers won the, the Red Sox won the game five to one. I don't think they had any home runs in the game. Um, They had scored five runs in the first couple innings on all singles, walks, guys reaching base like that. I almost felt like this was stylistically two very different teams and their approach and I'll be in I know it's an after the
1: fact analogy it is a result yeah You're and, looking and at the result but I think one of the things no. that's interesting about the Red Sox is it, it at least it looks at the way in the playoffs it, it didn't seem so much during the, the general season the regular season when they were hitting home runs it seemed like they were that they were playing the old-fashioned take Correct. a lot of pitches that, get walks lots of singles that's my point and that that seemed to be the case and I kept looking at this and going that's old-style baseball yeah um, let your sluggers hit the home runs the two or three of them and let everybody else get on base and that's the game that they were playing. Also, their speed was just remarkable. I mean, yeah. the five games they played against the Yankees, it was just brutal because they just anytime uh, it seemed like anytime there was someone on first. Do you agree base, that my oh, yes, casual so the, observation
2: the, that they seemed to be playing old time baseball and the Dodgers seem to be playing modern sabermetric right. ball? It, it just to the, to the eye, it appeared that way.
1: It did appear to that. But on the other hand, they also there, there was another factor which which was uh, which was written about this this week. If you think about it, the Red Sox built their team with three superstar. It's free agent yeah reason. no Think I, about I, this. I, it, that, sale it. Price and Martinez, yep. big ticket free agents. Who does that anymore? I mean, according yeah. to I mean, the sabermetrics say we just love to watch a team waste three hundred million dollars over you know eight or nine years on some yeah. superstar, paying for their past performance. And this crop and even Kimberl a couple years ago was was, was, was acquired a, was and a, sort of, expired, of like, expensive. Yeah. So it, it's it's almost as if they're doing everything exactly the opposite. And maybe it's an opportunity that maybe if you find the right free agents and you pay them, and, well, and certainly
3: just, this last off season, I think they. Kind kind of one in the se- sense of, like, J.D. Martinez was like... I mean, he wasn't signed until, like, spring training, right. and they got him for five
1: years, $110 million,
3: which is a great but deal I'll, for that guy. You know,
1: I want to talk about Martinez, because this is a guy that the Saber matricians love to hate, because he's a D.H., and he just gets... Em- Crushed by the the WAR metric, which seems to drive most of the sabermetricians, um, everything they do is centered around it. He's like half. I mean, at one point in the middle of the season, I took I took Martinez's uh, uh, WAR and added it to Freddie Freeman and for the Braves WAR, and I added them together, and they were substantially less than Mike Trout. And I said, is this really sensible? That you want to build a team, you're going to take Mike Trout. Over these two guys, I mean, no. maybe one. Obviously, he's a good defensive or center fielder, maybe even a little bit better at, at the plate. But both of them, I mean, yeah. it seems as if almost as if the Red Sox have decided there's something that the analysts are maybe missing that there is value in well, free what about agents. The,
2: what about the following? <laughs> what about the following theory, which is um, J.D. Martinez? You put him on, I don't know, the Kansas City Royals, and not just might his performance degrade. Let's forget right. protection, the lineup, but. His value is much less. You put him on a Red Sox team that already has 22 good players. Right. Then all of a sudden... He's much better. He's much better. He's not only much better, but he's much more valuable because, back to Cade's earlier point, winning and losing these series can happen at the margin. And so, you know, if you can get someone that adds a couple of wins above replacement or in a big game can make a good play, then... His value, you can't just look at it as the marginal. Effect. Yeah. It's it's his effect above and well, beyond what you've already got we, on the team. Let's
0: just note that the Astros obviously made some late season moves as well last year and some big free agent signings. So same thing, super money ball orientation, but then added a couple pieces, kind of counter to the pure, you know, economic right. model. And, you know, again, they won. Just anecdote. But it feels like those pieces might have been important.
1: What what, what Eric did was actually he, he identified the fact that the marginal value of a player depends on the team that they're playing for. Yeah, and right. most of these, all these war calculations, which are incredibly opaque, except for except for Shane's, which is called open war. But, uh, but all the ones that are used in, in public and in the public conversation, they essentially assume... A, a, a some kind of neutral background that all the players are, are valued against, and so someone like Mar- if you're going to if you're basically going to start a team from scratch and you want your first pick and the rest is going to be the average group, it's got to be Mike Trout because he's got such versatility. But if you're already trying to compete for a, a, a for the pennant and you want to win the World Series, the value of someone like J.D. Martinez, you've got a great bunch of fielders. You don't need him to play no. the field. You need a superstar bat, and he's bringing that extra value. So essentially, what you're saying is that the value, the war needs to be. As a function of the team that you're on, and this is always what's happened, a top team has often different sets of values. And someone like Martinez, I think, is super valuable to the, to the, to the Red Sox, but not wouldn't have been the right choice for, say, the Kansas City Royals well, to you, rebuild. You know,
0: one of the, the high-level points that, that really jump out to me from this is that we always consider baseball the pinnacle of like independent. Everything's I.D. Everybody's on their own, and you can just add them up. And we know we can't do that in football. We can't really even do that in basketball. But we always say we can do it in baseball. And you guys are saying, actually, no, it doesn't actually, it doesn't go through in baseball either.
3: And a further kind of full to this story, and this is very much in the theme of retrospective analyses. But one of the most valuable people on the Red Sox, I think, and in, 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 through this whole run is Alex Cora, their manager. He just seemed to, and this is again, is <laughs> a <resulting>. retro, <laughs> retrospective analysis, but he. He seemed to just know how you know, the right time to use his various right players. Place. And I mean maybe just you know, I've I've watched enough Red Sox teams where well, major mistakes right. have been made.
0: Well, what, what's an ex what is some example? Across the season, what's a what's a type of move that he
3: was, was ma- For example, his management of Chris Sale. Like it, it, his, Chris Sale was a pitcher that was the game wonderfully Terrific. for the Red yeah. Sox throughout their season, but clearly was wearing down near the end of the season. And he, they only got 40 innings out of Chris Sale, I think, from August on. And... You know, Cora was, and again, it's a retrospective analysis, he was able to manage those innings there in were a very, very Yankees, you know, effective
0: way. Was. So let, let, that, that example reminds me of, I mean, connects to this other yeah, thing we've yeah. been talking about, which is great, have your philosophy. And, and in fact, adhere to your philosophy because consistency and being systematic helps. But you've got to be able to deviate from your philosophy. You've that's got, right. you can't be quite that religious about it. You've got to adapt to circumstances. You've got to find the exceptions. Nobody's got a philosophy that's going to be right all of the time. Mm-hmm. Now, as soon as you allow that kind of deviation from the model, a lot of people are going to deviate and make mistakes. So the question is whether people can reliably deviate from their models or philosophies in a way that works out, or do, are we just in a way that's wise? Or are we just
1: reifying those that got lucky? Well, this is the difficulty. Yeah. Man, I mean, my response, of course, is not to deviate from your model, but just expand your model and let it be more more nonlinear, which is the word for what Eric and I were talking about. Or the hierarchical. Hierarchical. But the idea being the nonlinearity is actually the, the second level of baseball that I think the analysts haven't gotten to yet. This idea that, that they know that things are worth different in different times, but you can actually quantify and model that nonlinearity. So here's, okay. a, here's a statistic. That right now, we're going to be arguing maybe later in our show, but maybe right now, we'll talk about who's going to win the NBA. MVP. So, the Sabre metricians are still you know, talking about Trout he had another fantastic season. Obviously, I think uh, even to the Sabre metricians, I think Mookie Betts is going to win it. Mm-hmm. I think he, he paid, played a little longer, he just was a superstar in at least three categories. But someone like JD Martinez is so far away from the, the competitive uh, pool of, of winning the MVP because of that line because of that basic linearity. But here's something that I discovered. One I of think the it's about, just in, the, in his case because of the lack of defensive equipment. Because of the DH. But someone like, like Michael Trout. This is a guy whose on-base percentage is like 460, right? But the thing about baseball, a walk, when you use the linear weights or all of the, the OPS and the war, walks are valued at a constant rate. It's it's something like 0.3 runs. But a walk with two outs and nobody on is worth just over one-tenth of a run. Why is that? Because they usually don't hurt you. Yeah. Walking Mike Trout with... with two outs and nobody on is essentially like a free, it doesn't hurt you really at all. This is why Barry Bonds broke the
3: record for like intentional walks one year because right. they do, I mean, but if with, there was with no two outs, outs they would just put them on. With a no
1: outs it's an incredibly stupid move, but with yeah. two outs it's it's a very smart thing to do, particularly if the lineup around you is not that great. And if you look at Mike Trout, guess which position are most of his walks in? Mm-hmm. Two outs nobody on. Yeah. Yet we're evaluating him as if those are equally the same measure mm-hmm. at, the, at the linear value or the average value, and that's not right. You got and now the question is, is that his fault? Um, and you you ask what happens when Trout gets put on a different team. But the answer is, no, that's not to his credit. Partly it is, but partly because it's the surrounding that he's in. And mm-hmm. if you put him on a more neutral team, he wouldn't get that many walks. Mm-hmm. But then, of course, he'd have more opportunity to do other things. So it's not clear that uh, that that what the balance would be but most of the most of the analysts sort of ignore they use a standard model and what you're essentially saying is to either go away from your model or what I'm responding to is maybe have uh, a more but advanced wouldn't a model yep. wouldn't a model that looks at let's call it increase in win probability um, adjust for yes, that yes it should but that's a very hard hard thing to do i don't think anybody does that Uh, ...on an individual player.
2: Well, what would stop you from taking all of Mike Trout's at-bats during the season... ...and, you know, whether it's through simulation or otherwise... ...simulate what an average player might do in that situation... Add up the increase in win probability, and you would notice a massive deflation of all of
3: these walks that are taking and we place see, and in the routes. We have, yeah. start, we have started using win probability. I mean, you yeah. know, I mean, you know I've, I've, I've read, you know, Steve, you can, Pe- but that, but Steve Pierce contextual. had the highest win probability sure. added of everybody on the Red Sox, and that was part of the justification for why he
1: was the World Series MVP. Yeah. But that's but – that's uh, we typically think of that as, as re- again, looking back retrospectively what happened. Well, and, 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 and I mean it, had, it has the
3: co- kind of a corresponding disadvantage that it, it's, it's – you know, war is supposed to try and take a lot of the context out of it the is. calculation, whereas win probability added is, of course, trying to put as much of the context into the calculation as all. You'd almost want to have some kind of way of sophisticatedly blending those
1: two or it, something like that. So the three-run home run that brings you to tw- tie in the eighth inning – has more win probability than the same three-run home run in the second inning, and that shouldn't necessarily be the case. I mean, because obviously three runs counts. <laughs> three runs, no matter how you talk, to, how, you talk how you how well, you. Well, again, It's almost a philosophical
3: like discussion. Does three runs in the eighth so inning the count the same? So the question becomes: as... Are
1: you doing that in a in a, in a in, a uh, in a in the clutch? I mean, are you evaluating that, or is it the context that you were in? And so that's and so win probability is affected by the context enormously.
0: Yeah. So this is a really big conversation, and and in fact, I, this probably there's a I can't talk about this conversation with my old grad school advisor. It's like well, there is a topic we can't talk <laughs> about, and it's and it's win probability yeah. <laughs> um, because we differ on exactly this thing. So we're not going to take it up now because okay. this is big. But what, a lot of other sports. A general thing that I'm hearing you guys talk about is a theme you might you you might suggest here is. As good as the models are these days, as advanced as baseball is over virtually every other sport, as many resources as the league and teams are pouring into this, we're still getting lots of things wrong. And there's still lots of room for improvement. And the, I think the most important thing to take away from that is to never get too confident about your model, not get too sure that you've got the answer, and other people are wrong. We can continue to learn and improve these things. This, of course, is Wharton Moneyball. We're going to be here for the next almost two hours. You can join the conversation, one eight four four. 942-7866. 942 7866 Cade in, hosting this morning with the whole crew, Shane Adi. And Eric, that's a little on baseball. We had to give Shane
2: some love. Thank up you. Top, I appreciate I, that. Well, can we give him some Boston love? I mean, if we're going to transition, the parade is today. Well, if we're not, if we're going to transition to other sports, you know, I was just checking. Sure Obviously, can. the Patriots are feeling pretty good right now at six and two. Yeah, um, the Celtics should be feeling pretty good about their position. Um, I even just checked. What the heck? I not that I've been following hockey that much, but I checked the Boston Bruins. I think they're the fourth or fifth best record in hockey, although it's early in the season. Um, If you know, I know we don't do over under to the end, but if I go over under Boston two and a half championships, where (laughs) are you going? Today. (laughs) This year? Yeah, this year. Uh, I'm going under. I'm going under.
0: He's giving you, he's giving
3: <laughs> you, you mean, the Sox, Red Sox. Yeah. So I mean, Sol- yeah, I'm giving you the what Red Sox. I'm giving you the Red Sox. What the Celtics are doing is cute and it's fun to watch, but, but they're, they're not going to win the, the championship. Can I, so,
1: can I, uh, they're going to win the East, maybe. I'm, actually, I'm really interested in talking about this. I'm glad you brought up all these different sports, <laughs> because it's it, the sport. The, the seasons are at different points. And what's interesting about if this were baseball and 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 relative, say, the basketball season, seven games in or so, we would have no clue. We'd have nothing to say about who's going to win who's, who's uh, winning other than what we knew in the beginning of the season. right? But in basketball, because the value of the games, because the differential and the range of different talents is so big, we probably know an enormous amount about basketball, well, even more than we knew at the beginning I, I, of the season. Complete, even after seven so, games. Let's, let's so, call, let's, so let's call
0: it one tenth of the way through the season. Let's, let's call it ten percent through the season. And how much do we know how in much basketball we know. relative to what we
1: would have known? Exactly. I mean, obviously, we we we. I mean, so there's a couple surprises. I mean, and let's and and what does it really mean? So the Lakers are. You know, way behind. Not, not oh, really. Wait, wait, no, wait, wait. no well, Maybe they're not. So no, I, dis- so, so I disagree. So obviously, the Warriors are where exactly they ex- we expected them. But are they doing better? The, the Toronto is is doing well, but are they doing better than we expected? Are teams like the the Celtics and and and, the, and where are the the Sixers? How do, what do you what do you what do, you, what, do you, what do my basketball expert friends have to say about basketball? One tenth of the way in. Well, so here's what <laughs> I would say. I would say
2: here's a couple of surprises that I've seen. So, I would say the fact that the only unbeaten team in basketball still is the—any you guys know? The Milwaukee Bucks. Milwaukee Bucks. Okay, what do you make of that? Well, so— They I,
1: weren't on the list, if, you're, if I no. remember
2: correctly. So, I think the <laughs> the Milwaukee Bucks have arguably one of the top three players in basketball, and the you don't think Giannis is one of the best three or four players in basketball?
3: I mean, top three, <laughs> I don't know. Okay, I, I say, mean—
2: I think so. so no, really? So you okay, gotta, I, think, I mean, g- I would
3: definitely say top ten. Okay. No doubt about it. Wow, top three. I mean, you start with LeBron, obviously.
2: LeBron's the best Steph-, Steph, Steph Curry is not Steph hard. Actually, I've never been a Steph Curry kind of guy. I think Steph Curry can play well for... So here's what you do. Let me tell you, I ask you the following. You put, <laughs> Steph Curry, put Steph Curry... Yeah, I know where you're going ...on to a bad team. Yeah. And let's see if Steph Curry can be the dominant player uh, on that okay, team. non linearity. No, no. All right, linearity back yeah. No, well, I'm not to really? no, right to no you right. put
1: LeBron... You want to win a championship? Steph Curry, you want to take a crappy team and make them no, a little bit better? with you. Not step,
3: step Curry. You look all right. <laughs> Steph that's, 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 that's my point. No, that's not. I that, mean, it's a valid point, and that's uh, my point. It's a great. It's a great distinction. I, I'm, I'm not think, sure. Wait, I'm wait, wait. not
0: sure which is more valuable. Mm-hmm. It's like which would you rather have? Like, this is a wonderful connection to what Adi was talking about with baseball. So, which is actually more impressive?
2: I think it's more impressive <laughs> to have somebody who. I'll go back to your analogy in baseball. If I was building a team to start with, would I start that team? If I could, you know, if we did brown picks, I obviously I'm going to no, start with LeBron. I'm, I'm, I wouldn't no, start No, I'm asking you,
1: you here's here's you're going to get one pick and the rest of the team is random draws from the rest of the league. I'd I would
2: pick Giannis Antetokounmpo, the, the
1: Greek freak over Steph Curry. Okay, that makes sense. I I don't disagree with that if the rest of the team is average. But now you, I'm going to take correct. another Now here's another question. Now you're going to get one pick and the rest of the team from the top 10%. Now who do you want?
2: I want Steph Curry, nah. but here. Thank you. <laughs> but, but that doesn't make him a better player. But here's I'll why. I know, but it means no, no, he's but, more but, no, no, no. critical <laughs> to winning championships. Uh, I agree to that, but that's <laughs>
0: but that, because. That, but that doesn't mean he's the most more valuable. No, player. but, no. So can, but I mean, this is kind of what way. I was talking
1: about with J D Martinez. If I if I have to pick a player. To start the team and the rest no, is average, I, I it's Mike it. Trout, No, we, we, we love your
0: point, but it, it doesn't answer this question because it's kind of a philosophical question, but yes. can we do better than that? What if he did kind of a Shapley value thing here and said, given all the possible places a player could come in, like all the different teams he could be added to, what value does he add? And note, by the way, what value does he add relative to the next player coming in, right? So it's it's the, you, you kind of left out the alternative. It's not the Greek freak versus the average player, it's the Greek freak versus your second pick. And then when you go to Adi's example of now you already have a good team, would you rather have Steph or would you rather have your second pick? How much better are these guys than
2: the alternative to them?
1: Well, let's ask it to Giannis. If you have a really good team, would you rather add Giannis
2: or rather add Steph? Well, here's the reason I'd rather add Steph. I'm going to say why. And it's my concern. I watched the Toronto Sixer game last night. I think Toronto looked fantastic, beat the Sixers fairly easily last night. But here's the concern I have Toronto and why it's going to answer your Steph question. In the close game, so it's Game 7 of the Eastern Conference Finals, maybe, who is Toronto going to go to at the end of the game to win the game? So you could say, well, Kawhi Leonard. I don't know. Is that the offensive guy you're going to trust to win you the game at the end? And I would say the same thing about Kakampo. I'm not convinced that the end of a game you can go to him and say, Giannis, score this bucket, win us this game. I'm confident you can go to Steph Curry at any point of the game and say, score and win us this game. But he has Kevin Durant next to him, which is the reason why... I, you know can be confident in that. I can be confident in that because I he's, be in that he's. i don't even. i in fact. I would call Steph Curry now option one B on that team. Well, yeah, I think no, I mean, I'd I... rather have the ball in Kevin Durant's hand at the end of the game than they would Steph Curry. I don't even think when he's we the started, best player we, we, on his team. We, well, okay. exactly.
3: When we started listing the best players in the NBA, and we start out with LeBron, and you guys then started yelling, the next <laughs> player out of my mouth was going to be Durant. <laughs> yeah, but me Not too. Steph Curry. Agreed. So I mean, it, it kind of yeah.
1: So I have, I have Curry, Durant, and LeBron. I mean, but yeah, you, 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 you don't. You, you, you put Giannis ahead of, of Steph Curry. I
2: put Giannis in that next group of three to ten. I'm happy yeah, right. to make okay. an argument he's somewhere in All right, so let's get rack- back
1: to my original questions. One-tenth of the way in. Uh, what do we think of the box? I'm moving –
2: well, I'm moving – mo- here's who I've moved up in the east, and here's who I've moved down. I've moved Toronto way up in the east. I, you know, as, I think Shane and I talked about this last mm-hmm. week. Let's say starting the season we had – let's We'd imagine all the it. mass: I... Boston, Toronto, the Sixers, let's call it one-third, third, third, one-third. Third, yeah, one-third. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm now going to put – the Sixers down at about 10%, and I'm going to give 45%, or maybe I have to give now 10% to the Bucks or something. I don't think so. But I'm going to give 40% now to Toronto. So and would it be like 40-40, 10-10 40, or something? 40-40, right? 10-10. 40, 40, 40 40 40 so, uh,
1: so you're, you're discounting their, their perfect start in, in certain – why do we do that? Because in basketball, my understanding is the season is way too long and that even seven games is, is a lot.
2: It's a lot, but i mean, saying they're not winning meaningful games. They're I mean, not playing t- uh, top teams. Even if they're teams, playing so. top teams, so what? You know, it, it doesn't really matter if they win 50 55 games in the regular season. Is that let, let's see at the end of the season when it's a game to either clinch the division or as an actual meaningful game, let's see their record in those meaningful games. There's a lot of bad teams in the yeah, NBA. Like, remember, you even mentioned yep. the Lakers are 2 and 5. Well, the Lakers' five losses are two against the Spurs. One is against the Rockets. One's against Portland. And once against Minnesota. Now we say the Minnesota's the weakest of those five teams, but they're a near playoff team as well. Yeah. They've lost all five of their games against teams we all expected to be good in the West. So I'm not sure if we computed their difference from expected win shares that two and five is that different than what you would have expected given where they are in the season. Right. That's why you asked me. Why am I? T- I don't think two
1: and five for the Lakers is that no, surprising and, and, and to and me. I mean, honestly, and
2: non-stationary, not momentum, non-stationary. they're going to get better as the, the season well, goes We expect
1: on. them to get better, but. Also, also, the differences in schedules matters over seven games, over half a season, those get washed out. But at this point, you, you're, you're right; they have played very strong opponents in the, in the their in their
3: Football, games. even after you don't have a that takes right. way more than half a season to wash out the. Uh, well, let's talk schedule after the break,
0: Let's talk about that because the trade deadline has is interesting. It's more interesting now in football mm-hmm. than it used to be. Yeah, but it's still early in the season. You know, it's weird to me that this is the trade deadline. It seems like it ought to be later. We've got more football to talk about and other issues to talk about. We still have three quarters to go. Come back and join us after break.
3: Boys and girls of Welcome back. Welcome
0: back to see. Halloween edition Halloween. of Wharton Moneyball. <laughs> that's daniel bruno on the soundboard as always bringing us up out of the bottom of the hour kate massey hosting this morning with shane jensen to my right eric bradlow to my left and audi weiner straight away we're here for the next hour and a half some combination of us are here every wednesday morning eight to ten you guys can join us give us a shout this halloween morning eight four four wharton one eight four four wharton that's 1-844-942-7866. Matt, Dad, standing by for your call, or drop us an email, businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Hit us on Twitter at wmoneyball at wmoneyball. We just posted a picture of a beaming Shane Jensen. We're wearing sunglasses in here; it's so bright with Shane's Shane's Boston
3: love going on. Yeah, no, so it's it's. A, I'm radiant,
0: <laughs> radiant, uh, fellas. We've talked a little bit. Remember, about...
3: it may only happen four more times in the next uh, fifteen <laughs> yeah, years. No, so I don't really get too used to, to it. I really have to enjoy it. <laughs>
0: The, uh, the Sox have uh, have wrapped up the baseball season. We've talked about that a little bit. We've talked a little bit about basketball just starting their season. We've got football ahead of us, but before then, one week from today, one week from yesterday is election. So one week from today, next week's show, we'll be sitting here and we'll be kind of sifting through the results and talking about what we learned, what happened. It's, a, it's an analytics exercise these days in, in, in forecasting and Nate Silver having moved from the world of baseball into politics does you know probably the highest profile forecast out there. What are you I'm just curious a few minutes on the election because of the forecasting element. What are you guys looking for? What do you think we've learned methodologically? What's interesting to you as analysts about the election and maybe this year in particular?
2: So I spend a lot of time on 538 not just cuz I'm interested in politics and it's important to me personally but because I am interested in the methodology that they're using. And we have this interesting, you know, stat that people seem to be, I don't want to say confused about, but like, how could it be possible that 538 is essentially predicting an 85% chance that Democrats are going to take control of the House, but an 85% chance that Republicans are going to hold control of the Senate? And people seem these to be conflicting things, but they're not conflicting at all. So let's yeah. just start with the following. I mean, for those people that don't know, um, in the way the Senate... Every, Every House race is every two years. That's House of Representative members have a two-year term. So all 435 House races happen each year. Therefore, yes, there are incumbents, but no one is guaranteed to stay in their position. Let's talk about the Senate. It's a six-year term where it's essentially, not exactly, but a third, a third, a third up every two years. It turns out this year the Republicans... Of the 51 senators that they currently have, 42 of them are not even up for re-election. Right. Of the 49 Democrats have, 23 of them—sorry, yeah, 26 of them, sorry, are up for re-election. So, first of all, we just happen to be in one of those years where there's like four times as many Democrats up for re-election as not. Second— For the Democrats to obviously take control of the Senate, they have to get above 50 50, because the vice president breaks the ties. So the Democrats would need to get to 51. They'd need to gain two seats, which is really hard to do in an election year where you're, in some sense, protecting three times as many seats. So actually, if you look at the 538 forecast, I don't mind saying on the air I'm a Democrat, um, the Democrats are expected to hold 49 seats with extremely high probability. So if in some sense one says, well, they're not going to perform, where's the blue wave? I mean, the Republicans are. are No, the Democrats are predicted. The prediction is after uh, next Tuesday, it will be the same same 51-41. Now, one way to view that is, well, Democrats didn't gain any ground. Maybe. Another way to view that is they had three times as many seats that could have been overturned and that's not actually what we're seeing. And so actually fifty one forty nine
1: is it's actually pretty good. It's, so what you're that's saying is my in the point. midterms usually go in favor of the the house the, the party that is not holding the executive branch, and as a result, if they only stay where they are, given the backdrop that they're that they have so many seats to, to uh, correct to that are up for, for grabs this year, that actually standardizes them, and they're actually they're actually doing exactly what not not badly but good.
2: Yeah, exactly. Right. And my other point would be when you look at five thirty eight, the neat thing is you know people like to look at the overall statistics, but when you look under the hood a little bit, it actually comes down to when you look at these probabilities of this. Uh, party controlling, that party controlling, it actually, in the Senate, of course, since it's a small numbers game, it's only 100 seats, it comes down to two races, which means if the Democrats want to get to 51 instead of 50 or 49, they have to win the following two races. They must win the race in North Dakota, which means Heidi Heinkamp must hold her seat and win that race, and Beto O'Rourke must defeat Ted Bet- Cruz in Texas. Bet-
0: be- Beto? Beto,
2: yeah. Beto, sorry. Beto O'Rourke. <laughs> As
0: a Texan, I'll step in. Beto, that
2: sorry. One. Beto O'Rourke must win his race in Texas. Or the third one that's a possibility is um, in Tennessee, Phil Bredesen must defeat Marsha Blackburn. So those are the three potential races. The other ones, by the way, are so far of a differential. I don't want to put zero probability on them, yeah. but they're not even close to within the margin of error. Mm-hmm. So wh- when people talk about the odds, people say, well, there's a hundred. No.
1: There's only three two races race, that matter. Two or
2: three races that are actually matter. And you know Andrew Gelman, friend of all of ours here, yep. has actually done lots of studies of this about, you know, what's the value of a vote in each state? And he's kind of looked at this that we say, well, there's 100 Senate seats. Well, first of all, not all of them are up for your election. And secondly, yeah. only three of them
1: matter. Let's- well, one of the things about if you, you, you enjoy 538, and you said you've been going, but I, I, my view is there's nothing new to, to, to see on that. If I went two weeks ago, it's saying the same thing today as it was two weeks ago. One of my problems, and we have on our, our screen in our, in our, in, in our studio, this is a picture of a normal distribution. And my reaction to that is, really there's no there's nothing normally distributed about the probability distribution of the outcomes of the election that's a model and i don't think that model is an accurate model that's a model that that nate silver uses because it it's what we all use and and it it puts out a number 1 and 7 but i don't know where that why i should definitely believe that number in any in any real way
0: so this is this is going to raise a question i want to ask and then and then we need to move back to sports but we're interested in these kinds of things so i think it's worth pursuing a little bit in decision sciences we have this concept of a pre Which is take a decision and you're making about some uncertain future and ask, okay, now let's let's say we get this decision wrong in the future. In what way would we have gotten it wrong? So if we ask if we sit in here Wednesday morning and somehow got these forecasts wrong, in what way do you think they might go wrong? Like what, Where are the uncertainties here? Where are the weaknesses in this model here? So pushing you out, you say, you don't like this particular distribution or whatever. Is there something in here you can point to now that you think is an uncertainty or a potential error or something you think
1: could lead to um, an unexpected outcome? I think, it was, In my view, it's, it's, it's unknown unknowns. And that's really hard to to uh, to work in, and and obviously, and this is and this is I think is the modern era of polling is unknown unknowns. Now, and I don't disagree with with Eric's analysis in the in the in the Senate. It's really two races. But what do we know about these two races? Quite honestly, and the fact is is we don't know that much. And they're sufficiently close that that I mean, the, so why doesn't that just widen your confidence interval? Why does it just increase variance in the model? It does. I mean, well, it's not. I'm not, saying, sure we, I'm not sure whether that it's increase of variance. I mean, where do I put this unknown? I mean, I don't know it. We're we're gonna know it when, when the when the election I know, happens, right?
3: And I, 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 I think part of this, the, the I don't know how much their methodology actually builds this in, but you know, one of the things is that you know, with unknown unknowns, is there could be something going on, sort of like you know, some kind of sea change or something like that, that is not captured by the polls, and all these races that we're kind of viewing as. Somewhat independent events. That's a huge. They're not. Is are actually uh, right. much potentially much more highly correlated with each other than we realize. I thought
1: like that was the main lesson. The that design. was right. the main that lesson. That was what we talked yeah. about in 2016. If we have if we somehow have the, we have the chance to, to play the clip from two years ago, yeah. that is exactly what the argument was. Yeah. Because you, we were, talking you about, were, we were talking about you were talking about the model, and you were you were saying no, this is works, and I said no because it's all going to go one way. If, if, if yeah. there's a problem, in, in, all that's gonna, not in, what I said. What I
2: said. I what I said in 2000. <laughs> That's what I said. Was there, I'm not saying what you said. No, that's okay, what I said. Let, me say what, let me say what I said. Let me just say what I said. What I said was, when the election night happened, and because of the timing of when the polls closed and what happened, when Florida went in Trump's way, I said, all right, so clearly there's an other – it's the turnout from each party is not what they expected – I would not expect, then, Florida to be independent of what happens in Michigan, in Pennsylvania, and in Ohio. So what I did is, in my sense, if you like, I basinly updated. Once I saw the Florida result, I'm like, probably the same unobservable that people didn't bring into the model in Florida is going to happen in other states. Absolutely.
1: And so we agree but, on but that. But that was true before the election. And that's the point that I'm making now. The fact that they're all going, going to go one way is true before the election, which means that the normal distribution, which depends on this independence, and that's what I'm talking about, it depends on this, this you this would top- just make it fatter tail. I would make it – actually, like I'm not sure – I wouldn't, I wouldn't even use a normal distribution. That's really what I'm talking about. I, I would make it more more like a uniform distribution, yeah, yeah, which, is, of your... course, is a, a normal that it's been squashed. <laughs> <Without Cauchy's laughs> but, or something yeah. like that, right? But the thing is, is that – and there's a few things that are very different. No one would disagree that, that the, the electorate is extremely polarized. And what's the outcome on on turnout? What's the outcome on? Well, how does that impact yeah. polling? Just so you know, but that's what five. Uh, just that's say, what I mean by the unknown, second unknowns. part.
2: The second part, I don't think five thirty eight ha- has a as good of a handle on the first one. Of course, they have mathematical models to predict turnout, and so they build those turnout models based on amount of funds raised, amount of people that have been registered to vote. Um, the amount of advertising that goes on in each of the local districts. So I'm going to say, I agree with you. The second part is, I don't know if we know exactly, let's call it the bias in the polls. They do build prediction models for turnouts. And to me, if I told you right now, let me ask you, how much of your uncertainty would get reduced? If I told you the turnout in each state right now, I told you that number, I gave it to you. We're sitting here. I, I told you factually what turnout was going to happen in each state. How much of your uncertainty would get reduced?
1: It's to me, a, a large odd. part yeah, of it. A large part of it. I would, I would say, for me, about half. I would say half is yeah, the uncertainty model. Which, the is, other is, which is a
0: big chunk. Which is a big chunk. Let, but yeah. let me ask a more detailed question there. Why, why can't they do that? We know. Why can't we look at like, um, absentee balloting? And and how it's coming in? Do we know where what counties or what precincts they, we we they, we do? It, shouldn't we? Shouldn't that tell us where the sentiment is? Or whether the it, so we can compare. So for example, yep. say, compare absentee battling this election versus previous elections. See where it's higher versus where it's lower, and how those areas have historically gone. So that should tell you whether the turnout is currently running in favor of one party or the other right
2: it, the answer is yes and that is the kind of analyses that is being done already because by the way pennsylvania i believe at least unless you guys know better um i have to go vote early I tuesday morning exactly. i'd love to be able to vote in advance <laughs> i have relatives in florida that just said just placed our vote i'm like when do i get to place uh, when do yeah, we get advanced voting here in se- the state se- of se- pennsylvania a.m. a.m. i know 7 a.m on tuesday morning um but I, I agree with you, Kay. There's no reason why you could not look at early polling data. But you're right. You'd have to compare it to other early polling data. You'd have to have it at a more micro level that would allow you to say something
1: about the regions that seems by doable. which— That seems and,
0: it, it, and that's the it, Most important uncertainty agree. out there.
1: The thing is, that what, 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 what makes me distrustful is that all of this—the way this works is based on past data. And that's the that's how it works. You you try to line it up, and then you good. make some model. That's fair. I just good. think that 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 we that the lesson learned from two years ago was the models that we use in the past have a have this un, unmeasurable amount of unreliability in them. And maybe we'll figure them out in a couple of years. Okay, good. But so, they don't. They just aren't necessarily right. So I see the number one and seven. Really, that's that's a confidence level. Uh, that's how confident Nate Silver is in his forecast. Six out of seven, he thinks is the chance the Democrats uh, will. Uh, um, the, in this case, lose the Senate. Well, it's symmetrical, symmetrical for the House. Sy- sy- symmetrical. So sy- they, they give the, the Democrats a six six out of seven chance to win the House. That's, that's correct. That's, that's right. And that's essentially his confidence. And and what he's going around and asking people is to think about it, So well, it's like rolling a die. It's just a little bit less likely than probably rolling a six. Well... That's because his model is not. He, that's he's expressing confidence, lack of confidence in his model. If the model were better, he'd probably be much more certain at this point. We have a lot of data. Okay, so Adi, final word on this, and I'm curious where all of you go.
0: Given that, and given what we saw in 2016, how do you massage these 538 data in your head as you go into election day next week? So you, you we're we're. This is what we do. We kind of want to know what we think going in. So if you take these data, but those concerns, what does it what does it integrate to?
1: Well, I would I would just push the the both forecasts to 50%, 50? fifty percent slightly fifty, not two fifty exactly, but not all the way. I push them towards fifty percent. I would shrink towards fifty percent. Oh my gosh. So I would oh, say no, the Democrats no, are not instead of being go all the way. No, 50. no, I didn't. Did so I say I'm, all? I said shrink towards fifty okay. percent.
0: Okay, then fine. Then then that's a great idea. But how far are you going to shrink? Uh, at least at least one
1: seventh. How, where do you come up with that? I don't. It's just, <laughs> it's just, arbitrary. just, it's just an arbitrary. Okay, so at least so what's I'm, kinda, the most, I'm, I'm most, basically what's two I'm essentially two thirds in both houses, in both branches. Okay, instead of one. Okay, seven. so he's, he's shrinking
0: based on uncertainty, which is
1: I think the prudent, wise, analytic approach. Now, by the way, Nate Silver did exactly the same thing with the presidential election two years ago. His models were saying ninety-five percent Hillary. That's, and he, and said, he just we, said, screw it. I, I, <laughs> I just don't know how to forecast it. And, and, I'm, and, and basically he said that because he got absolutely burned going into the the uh, in the primaries. He said, my model said, this, this shouldn't have happened. Yeah. Trump shouldn't be standing here right now. Yeah. I don't know how it happened. Therefore, I'm just throwing it down. Okay. That, Eric and yeah, Shane, uh, what do you think? So Eric,
0: Adi moves to two-thirds. He, ta- he takes one-seventh away from the tail and puts it on the other side. On both
1: sides, by the way. Yeah, yeah,
3: on both houses. <sighs> My cynicism about this whole process um, puts it to 50-50. Wow,
1: great, great. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm an, an
3: admirer. Why would, why
0: would cynicism about the process lead you there?
3: Oh, no, I mean, I, I, I guess I have very, I, sorry, I, I have pretty strong opinions about, you know, what 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 the right thing to do is in, in this particular election. I don't have confidence in, in people doing anything. That's the not right an thing. analytics
0: answer. It's <laughs> not an analytics answer. I'm not being analytical with
3: this stuff. I, I'm not. I, I, okay, we I, 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 aside And also, and also yeah. I do think that, um, some of the unmeasurables, like voter suppression, all these types of things, I think are actually quite influential. What I'm looking for, the races I'm most interested in, are not the ones we've talked about at all. I think the most important races, at least for future presidential races, is the governorships. Absolutely. So
0: I know that in some high-profile cases, we may be looking at people who could be running for president in the future, like in
3: Florida. No, no that's no, not the no, reason. It's, it's about who oh, controls who, the state legislature and who's, who, who makes the, the rules, for, who how makes the the rules for our next presidential election.
1: Well, in Pennsylvania, and specifically, who,
3: who gets to say who gets to vote in our next presidential election? It's not even just who
2: gets to vote. The redistricting of states the re- is, run by the gov- is run by the state government. State Senate. State,
0: state, state Senate. Senate. State Senate. And the governor. Who
3: gets to vote? That's well, who gets to vote? Who we vote. actually allow to vote in this country. Okay, you,
0: you mean around the like voter, felons? voter suppression?
3: No, he's talking stuff. about... Yeah, yeah. yeah.
2: Okay. So let me just tell you just quickly, when I look at the distribution that's up on our screen about the Senate, this is the way I think about it, actually. I've actually not been focusing, maybe Adi would agree with this, not on the who's going to win control. I've actually just been focusing on the 51 Republican... 49 Democrat number, which is the current number, and the probability mass that's at that value and below. In other words, what's the probability if you'd like that the de- Democrats and Mike it, for me are no worse than off than they were. Before, and if you actually look at the mass of the distribution, it's somewhere around fifty percent somewhere like that that in some sense they end up neutral and then you kind of look it's a little asymmetric it looks like there's more chance at least according to five thirty eight the Republicans are going to gain a little more the Democrats could go i'm that's what that's I've not been focusing on when I've been focusing on where are we going to be relative to where we okay. were in two thousand sixteen okay. good 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 and I think I think it's a more stable thing to look at, and I think we're about the same
0: all right uh so Fantastic discussion, guys. I'm carrying away a two-thirds. I like Adi's suggestion there. And in general, the matches, we do this all the time with, like, baseball, one loss records, right? It'll be May or June, and we start talking about to what extent do we extrapolate what we see now through the end of the season. And we're always talking about regressing back to some base rate. And then the question is, what's the base rate and how far to regress it? But that's what we're doing here. And that's just good, prudent statistical forecasting is regression to the mean and more whenever you are more uncertain about the model. The other political thing in the sports news these days, of course, is the College Football Playoff Committee. So they announced their rankings for the first time last night. This is where the wins and losses on the field have to be weighed and measured by people and some subjective evaluation made. Happens every year. This is the fourth year of the College Football Playoff Committee. Is it the fourth? Maybe it's the fifth. I think it's the fifth year, actually. Um, Anything interesting about this? What'd you see, Eric?
3: I Shane, well is I, there is there anything I, I don't see like yeah I, I guess I haven't noticed anything particularly controversial at this point
0: Right so they lead with the, the top 4 are Alabama Clemson LSU and Notre Dame Mhm and then it goes from there. But those, that's, I don't think that was a very controversial four. It's
2: also, I hate yeah. to say it this way, given the game coming up this week between Alabama and LSU, you can put LSU any number you want. I mean, you can put them at seven. You can put them at 15. It's free to put them at three. I mean, although it is informative, they beat Alabama. They're going to be in the top four. Now, of course, the interesting part is, um, at, I think if Massey they lose Peabody, to Alabama, where do you put? Do, well, do you draw, they're, how they're, far do you drop them? I it's, guess it's is inconsequential the in my view because if they, I think Cade would agree with this as well. If they lose to Alabama, they're now a two-loss team unfortunately for them, they have no room for error. If they lose the game, they're a two-loss team, and in my view, they're out of the playoffs. They cannot make the playoffs if they're a two-loss team because, first of all, they won't even make the SEC championship game, and, number two, there would be a two-loss team, and there would be no argument for them over a very other strong one-loss team. So I think they're out if they lose. We've yet
0: to see a two-loss team make it. One of these days we will, but it requires... But it won't be
2: LSU this year. (laughs)
0: That's right. Fair (laughs) enough. Um... I think that's all that all sounds right. One of the, the reason the main reason I care is that when we run our simulations, when we forecast what's going to happen in the future in college football, we have to have a playoff committee model at the end of our simulation. And so we we worked on it pretty hard last year. We started the season with almost nothing and then over time we refined it until we ended up with a decent model. And so when this first ranking hits, we, it's a total out of sample test for our model. And so we 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 want to know are we are we thinking about the committee correctly? So let me are, you, are you, how what's a good way to measure that? So if I tell you we got 24 out of 25 right as a starting place. 25 teams in their rankings, we got
3: 24 of them. That's not you are talking bad. about this year right yeah, now. just now, just now. In our in our You in, replicated the rankings in 24 out of 25. No, 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 swamps? he said you got uh, who's in there, who's not in? necessarily oh. the order. Okay.
0: As a, as a, we got the first four I'll tell you why I well, think, we got the first yeah. four, right? Not not in the right order. We got for positions five through 11, so seven teams, all of them exactly right except for Kentucky two spots too high. Mm-hmm. and 24 out of 25 overall I'll that say, sounds impressive i'll to tell me. you
2: why I think it's really impressive there's a massive amount of error in the lower part of the distribution and in fact we even saw that in the top 25 last week where something like 11 teams out of the top 10 all lost so I think it's ridiculously impressive that you got 24 out of the 25 because getting down near 16 to 25 it's hard there's yeah. a lot of teams that could yeah. be it's, in and, there it's, That's right.
0: it, and because of really that, impressive well because of that, I think we also got lucky I mean I, I would never have expected all right. and you see some things that are a little funny like Our biggest miss was Mississippi State, which we had five spots lower. And if you start looking at why, they are a three-loss team and Texas A&M are, are a three-loss team. They happen to have played this past weekend and Mississippi State won. And so I feel like the committee probably couldn't rationalize putting them below Texas A&M, even yeah. though we don't care about such things. So we dropped them like four places below there. So you see little wrinkles like that. But it leaves us, you know, just a little bit more confident that we're doing something right with our, uh, with our model. And of course, where does that leave us? What does our model say? I and mean, we can maybe talk about it later in the in the show. But we have we have Clemson something like ninety seven percent to make the playoff now. The la- highest,
3: right? Yeah, that's yeah. Highest. Uh, Al- you know the schedule way better than me. Of of these sort of top say five teams, which one kind of who who faces the toughest schedule going through?
0: Well, LSU's got to go through Alabama right, right now, so that's the most likely team to drop. Notre Dame, we just don't believe they're as good as their record, so they don't have that tough a schedule. But we have them like number 10 in the country or something. So mm-hmm. we still only put something like a 36% chance of they making it through. Now, maybe they still make it in as a one-loss team. It depends on what goes on around them. But those two are the ones that we least believe. And then we believe pretty strongly in Michigan. We still have a lot of chips on Oklahoma. Uh, we think Georgia's a great team. They just have a tougher schedule to go through. All right, right, has been a little college football and a little bit of elections. We still have an hour to go. Come back and join us after the break. Welcome back to Wharton Money Bomb. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning. Coming to you from the Wharton School, Huntsman Hall, Sirius XM Business Radio Studios. Looking out onto Locust Walk. Cade Massey hosting this morning with my buddies and faculty colleagues, Eric Bradlow, Shane Jensen. Audie Weiner just walked out the studio. He was here and making major contributions for the first hour of the show. He's now making major contributions in the classroom. You guys can make contributions, too. Give us a shout. 1-844-WHARTON. That's one 1-844- 844 or send us an email businessradio at SiriusXM.com businessradio at SiriusXM.com or shout at us on Twitter. We are at WMoneyBall at WMoneyBall we'll take your claims, observations, opinions, we'll take your over-under suggestions. We are a good place to follow the world of sports analytics. We have finished the opening hour of the Open Lines conversation. Now we're rolling into the guest segment today. We have coming back to the show Michael Lopez. You guys might recognize him. He's been on the show over the years a number of times. He runs a site called Stats by Lopez. You can find him on Twitter. His Twitter is also at Stats by Lopez. He is a terrific statistical follow, sports analytics follow. And he's made one of these interesting transitions we see some of the guys do lately. And this is a high profile one. He's moved from being just a boring old college professor to running analytics for the NFL. And we're going to hear all about that. Michael, welcome back to the show.
4: Thanks so much for having me on. I'm I'm glad
0: I'm not boring and old <laughs> like us. Like us, man. We got to bring you fancy young people on the show, yeah, liven these things up. So, are you? Uh, Where is the NFL office? Like Fifth Avenue or some ridiculous thing? Have you moved from upstate New York down to uh, down to Manhattan? Is that part of the? Uh, is that part it, of the, the gig? That
4: transition hasn't happened yet, uh, <laughs> but yeah, the. Uh, league offices in in, uh, in Midtown on Park
0: F. Yeah, all right. So I hope you negotiated for a good office there, Michael. That should be part <laughs> of the thing, man. You should be down there in all the glitz and the glamour. Listen, yeah. um, w- you know, we we heard about this move, at, at, and, and we've been kind of curious about it, so we're glad to have a chance to talk with you about it. I felt like it was a little bit, um, as they say in Silicon Valley, in stealth mode for a while. Uh, can you talk about it more freely? Can you tell us how this came to be and what your responsibilities are over there?
4: Sure. Well, I mean, the, the there's an increased interest uh, in and need, realistically, to, to analyze football data. Uh, and I've been doing a lot of that on my own personal research. So, you know, whether it was uh, NFL referees or team behavior or various topics uh, over the years, um, you know, a lot of this was sort stuff I was doing anyways. Um, this just happened to be an opportunity to do it for the league's office. Um, and the, the temptation to work in sports has had sort of been there for you know, a long time and in multiple sports, it's it sort of, <clears throat> you know, I had, you know, thought about that. You know, this particular job is, is, is interesting in the fact that it's um, it's not for any specific team. And so in that sense, um, you know, there, there's not a, you know, everything isn't sort of completely inside the office. You know, some of the stuff we're going to be sharing and some of the stuff we have shared, uh, and that's kind of nice. Uh, and it also allows me to continue to do work, you know, academically. we continue to publish, uh, to continue to sort of, Work uh, through know, all my scholarly research that I was doing, anyways. Um, so that's kind of why it was exciting—is that it, it sort of kept the best of both worlds. You know, I loved all the sports research I was doing; I continue to still do that. Um, but now, uh, a little bit of the stuff I'm doing is sort of under wraps in the in, in you know, for the uh, NFL.
0: Got it. We were talking to Michael Lopez. Michael is the director of data and analytics at the NFL. He was at Skidmore College. He is still an adjunct there at Skidmore College where he's been a statistics professor for years. And um, he's always run a, a sports analytics website called Stats by Lopez. It's not exclusively football. He actually covers a lot of things. But I've always been impressed at his ability to maintain a tenure track career and do the stuff that he does up there on the website. So I think the NFL did well to grab you, Michael. How did they find you? How did you find them? How, how did
4: that match occur? Uh, I don't really know. <laughs> that was kind of, um, you know, they, they were the job posting, and um, I think there was mutual interest. And uh, the, the, the idea that um, the, the league is interested in, in working with data uh, is pretty exciting. So realistically, this is a new position for them. This isn't something that they had had. Uh, so we really create a position. There should have a team of a couple of us that are answering questions with data. Um, at least sort of on the football op side of things. There's also an interest in working in data with health and safety and marketing and business. Um, some of those domains are, are outside my expertise. Um, this one specifically pertains to sort of the odd field
0: front. Got it. How is the NFL thinking about w- what they're doing there? So how much of what – it's it's a little bit weird. I know the NBA has done this for years. They've had people there in the league office helping teams kind of make better use of the data. Um what is what is their position? What is the NFL's? What's the goal they have in having you there? Some of some of it is to bring teams along. Some of it is to bring fans along. Like what, what's the mission?
4: Yeah, I guess it's kind of three three a three pronged approach. I mean, I think first is just to, to increase the overall adaption of analytics in football. Um, and there's a core audience that I think wants this information and maybe hasn't exactly had all the information they have wanted to have over the years. And so, realistically, a, a job like this can push some of that. So there will be sort of events in, in, in ways that we're going to sort of you know, maybe grow the public you know, face of, of football analytics. Um, I think part of it is also internal. So maybe a second part is, is using data uh, internally to better understand the product, um, to better understand officiating, to better understand health and safety, to better understand uh, the changes in the game over time. Um, <clears throat> and then sort of the last part is sort of like where is the game going? So realistically, um, football now is different than it was 15 years ago football in 15 years is going to be different than it is now. Um, what can data say about sort of where football is going and, and how you know maybe we want to change the rules or sort of adapt to, to sort of stay in front of things
0: That's, it's really neat to hear that spelled out. I, I hadn't thought about the, the, the internal analytics will make a lot of sense. there's lots of questions that they would reasonably have that they might rely on academics to do or guys, you know, on their on their couches, but why not have someone inside to talk about health and safety? And why not have someone look at refereeing? That's, that's an, and, and, and you might want to not share that information, so I, that makes a lot of sense to me. This last piece was surprising, that where the game is going, what, what, in what way do, do, can you help them understand where the
3: NFL is going? Well, so I think we want to
4: better understand the overall state of football. Um, so in other words, where are our players coming from? How has that changed over time? Um, how does that change by position? How does that, uh, you know, how does the, the sort of transition from the college game to the pro game work? Realistically, if you look at the, the variability and what offenses that college teams are running, it is it's fairly enormous. Whereas maybe pro teams are a little bit more consistent in terms of how often they're running and passing. So, you know, when college teams are making certain transitions, how does that impact the pro game? And realistically, what's going down even up or below that sort the high school moving on forward.
0: So why does the league want to know these things? Why is that actionable in some way?
4: Well, realistically, I think if there are going to be changes to the, the sort of overall distribution of who's playing in the NFL or where they're coming from, um, you know, maybe there's more of an international product in, in the future. Uh, I think those are very interesting things to know in terms of how it's actionable. Um, you know, I think some of those things are maybe outside of my control, um, but at least sort of spelling out, like, what are the changes that we're seeing. You know, I mean, I think as sort of like one rough example, uh, the, the, the influx of spread offenses in college has, has linemen that are much different than they were maybe 10 years ago. So 10 years ago, a lot of our linemen were sort of used to maybe run blocking more than pass blocking. Now they're coming in, sort of in spread offensive schemes, and maybe they're, they're they're not as used to the past one. Mm-hmm. Well, so maybe when they get to the NFL, maybe they're harder. They're having a harder job, and so maybe that's part of the reason that you know maybe we've had an uptick in quarterback injuries. And realistically, that that's actually not to admit that we've had an uptick in quarterback injuries, but that's one thing that could happen maybe if there are changes is sort of maybe uh, certain positions are more at risk or certain positions are uh, are, are, are sort of expecting things.
0: Things to go differently. Got it. Is what? Wh- where in the mission is, if at all, is helping teams or bringing teams along or fostering greater use of analytics by teams? Is that in there at all?
4: Well, so I don't think we're helping any specific teams. Um, it's, a, it's actually, I will admit that a couple of teams have asked for advice. And it's not, like I, I think. Six months ago, you probably could have gotten me to give advice for you know a very very cheap rate and possibly for you know like a summer <laughs> project, right? Um, and now, now, that I'm in the role, it's money you know, that because realistically, you know, that I can't give any specific team advice. However, I do think that if we push the overall adoption of football analytics, and if, if we're having events where we're highlighting all the cool things you can do with the data then the hope is, is that teams will be quicker to adopt. Um, so we want to build a, a sort of foundation of folks that are, are interested and, and also do the analyzation of football data so that, you know, when you know, a certain team is going to hire folks, they can, they can refer to us and we can give them names so that they can have a better sense of who to hire for these jobs.
0: All right, world! Did you hear that? If you want a job in the NFL, reach out to Michael Lopez. He's going to be peddling names, analyst names, through Michael <laughs> Lopez for NFL teams. Hey, what, what um, can you say? What kind of stuff teams have been more interested or less interested in? Like, what, what are the goodies that attract their attention? What are the things that are more like vegetables? You think they ought to be using, but and eating and consuming and getting to know, but they they don't seem to be as interested.
4: Yeah, I mean, I think that that's a great question. I mean, uh, the audience is the future is player enough. And every player shoulder pads has two chips in it, and those chips record ten observations per second. The you know instantaneously that feed goes back to our uh, next gen stats office in LA, and teams get that data the the, the sort of week after. Um, this is the first year that teams have had it for all teams. In the last couple of years, they've just had it for their own games, and so they've had their opponents, but only the teams that they're playing. Now they have all players on all teams. Um, when you have that that trove of data, that makes that makes almost all other data, um, you know, honestly less interesting. Um, but this data is also more difficult. And so, realistically, you could have gotten away with maybe a staff of a couple, you know, a couple researchers sort of working on the static play-by-play data. This data is too big for that. You, you realistically, you need somebody to, to store the data and, and wrangle the data, and you probably need a couple, you know, realistically, ideally, a big team of folks to analyze that data. Um, but that's where the game's going. You know, what are the teams doing with that? Um, I, honestly, I don't have a great idea. I mean, I have uh, some hints, but a lot of teams like to keep that stuff close to the vest. Um, but I, I do know that that's sort of where their focus is, is, is how can we analyze this data? Um, because the really, the really cool thing is, is that even some of our coaches are getting into it. So, you know, as one example, for decades, coaches would draw play cards. And so a, a scout team coach running the opposing team, would take a, a big index card and, and write circles and arrows and all this other stuff to simulate what plays the opponent was gonna run. You can go on the next-gen stat site if, if, if you're um, you know, on a, on a team and you can take those same cards and you can just immediately extract that from the data and press print and no, you no longer have to create that huge binder of index cards. You can press print on a certain team's formations or a certain team's names and you have all those cards now and it's remarkable. It, like, it's like remarkable like,
0: how tidy it is. I mean, you look at these diagrams and you look at the, the the videos, and it's they're so tidy. You would think this is how it would be drawn up by a coach if you're going to say this is what you do. But it's not drawn up. These are actually the movements of players captured, you know, in the finest of detail. So, for example, you have for you guys listening, Michael runs a stat a site called Stats by Lopez, and he has a Twitter account called Stats at Stats by Lopez. You can see a recent play. So where Devin McCourty intercepts a pass and, and takes it down the left sideline for a touchdown, and he's recorded at the highest speed of any ball carrier of the in the season. So this is just kind of the fun, mm. you know, the fun things you can do. But they're also that's interesting as well that Devin McCourty can run 22 miles an hour. And that's pretty. Nobody amazing. else is doing that. But if you watch that play, it's like this is like, you know, it looks like a computer game, but these are actual the actual guys. So it's pretty compelling. And I'm just consuming it completely superficially.
4: Right. Well and that's how uh that that's sort of what's attracted the the coaches is that um you know they have to draw these things up by hand and now suddenly now you just look at Devin McCourty run down the field and you know not how to do anything. That's all at your fingertips. Um and, and the questions they're asking are, right now they have so many questions. So you saw McCourty's fastest speed, but you know, the next question is is you know, McCourty has to play the next play, how fast is he gonna be in the play the next play? The next question is, how much uh, space was McCourty covering on that play? Right. Um, how much, uh, um, you know, <clears throat> when the, the receiver that was throwing, thrown to, how much space did he have when the ball was thrown? Um, all these questions can be asked with this data, and those are questions that, you know, for years, maybe you've had best you have a scout spirit on. You know, now you have fine numbers that you can put to that. So
0: what, what your position is, uh, teams do with this what they want. We're, we have collected the data. We've sat on it for a couple of years. Now we're sharing the data, but we're not we're not going to make it especially easy. We're not going to take any ownership over this. It's every team for themselves. Is that correct?
4: Well, I mean, I think so. I'm in the, the league office in in New York. The West Coast group is the one that handles the, the sort of storing and the sharing of this data. They've put an incredible amount of work and resources. Uh, they have folks from Amazon Web Services working with them. They've they've tuned a lot of this data into numbers that are already actionable. So they have numbers like expected completion percentage, expected catch percentage, and those are things that take, uh, you know, some statistical tools and put probabilities on them. Um, And and, and so, you know, they're starting from, you know, I wouldn't say they have everything they want yet, but teams are already starting with information that is super helpful. Um, And if you go on the next-gen that you can get a lot of those numbers. Um, that the
0: teams are also getting and can drop them, Michael. You're referring to these West Coast guys. How big a team does the NFL have out there doing that kind of processing? Because as soon as you get into like expected completions, you're you're talking about very sophisticated analysis of the motion tracking data. That's the kind of stuff that we've seen in basketball emerge and soccer. These guys have been doing it for years and crunching huge you know computers in order to get it. So what kind of resources have you guys mustered out there on the West Coast to do that?
4: Um, I mean, I can't speak. Exactly with what they have out there, but my guess is there's a staff of maybe eight to ten folks that have, have taken the last couple of years of data and they're looking at, uh, you know, at least with this metric, they're looking at when the pass is thrown, how fast was the quarterback running, how much space did the receiver have, wow. uh, how obviously how far was the pass, what was the angle on the pass, and a zone on defense. Um, and some of those testing metrics go into, uh, uh, you know, various machine learning algorithms and, you know, give us, you know, there's in-sample and out-of-sample testing and cross-validation. And At the end, we get some probability. Okay. Um, I think these are the first steps. This isn't data that's been sitting around for years. Right. These aren't algorithms that have been tested for years in terms of contrasted to all Um uh, But we are starting to see, like, you know, when quarterbacks are running, it's harder to compete at home. You know? And part of the reason they're running is because they need their line to do a great job of blocking. And so we can start to get into a little bit of those questions, um, you know, even already just a couple months
0: in. Well, that's fun. You can see, like, you can, you could imagine Patrick Mahomes breaking the model straight away, right? But, but more <laughs> seriously, you could you could like assess something precisely and objectively what he does differently than most quarterbacks, his ability to move and throw the accurate balls. Shane's trying. to Yeah. Jump
3: in. So, um, th- this actually kind of leads into the question I had: is you know, do you sort of envision your kind of NFL-based, uh, NFL office-based the kind of analyst? analysis team doing something like you know would you guys be producing like independent sort of like player evaluations that would be publicly available or or is this something where you're just trying to facilitate i mean obviously every team is doing this internally and in their own way and and do you guys see yourself as sort of facilitating each team's analysis or are you guys going to be kind of an independent analysis team producing your own say player ratings and stuff like that for the public to consume
4: yeah, that's a, that's, a great, that's a great question. I, I think, honestly, the, the player ratings themselves are really tricky because, um, first, it's not really our goal. Um, you know, I think the main thing we want with player ratings is we want, we want our best players healthy. <laughs> but beyond that, you know, whether Aaron Rodgers is better than Tom Brady, it's not a question that is, I think, the, the sort of at the top of the league office's mind. Um, and, and, but, however, we also understand, you know, at least from my perspective, You know, we have quarterback passion rating on our website, and that's been on our website for years, and for a long time, that's how traditional media have interpreted the value of a quarterback. But there are uh, multiple problems with quarterback rating. And so, you know, maybe there are things that we want to tweak and update um, in terms of, you know, allowing to make sure that what we are sharing is sort of the best metrics possible. Um, for how you know the public is going to consume, you know uh, our you know NFL.com stats.
2: So, Michael, this is Eric Brow. I want to ask you. I love asking this question to anybody in a let's call a league-wide uh, role of responsibility. When you see the NFL moving forward in the work that you're doing, if you had to look out five years and say there's going to be improvement in one of three areas, is it because the NFL will have better data? Is it because you're doing better math that the NFL wasn't doing before, or is it because what? Has, is you're doing now? Teams are more able to adopt. So I like to describe it: is it a data problem? Is it a model problem? Or is it a, uh, if you would like, interpretation or usage problem? Which do you see the NFL having the biggest area of improvement?
4: So I think the, I mean, I think this goes back to the fact that this is, you know, more or less a new position. Uh, this isn't the, these uh, some of these questions were being asked, but they were maybe answered uh, using less horsepower than maybe they are now. Um, and so I think. Realistically, uh, they, they recognize that a lot of the things they want to know, you know, what's our future game is going to look like, um, how, what, who are our best officials, are our quarterbacks more at risk than they were five years ago. Um, I think realistically, the the motivation and the interest um, it, it's sort of going to come from all over. And I think, you know, I don't I don't really look at a lot of what I do as, um, you know, I'm not picking the best model all the time. Um, but realistically, it's not the fact that they're asking me to pick a, a certain machine learning algorithm or even sometimes multiple regression is sufficient. The, the the questions, I think, are more important than, you know, what exactly model I'm using. Um, and, you know, I, I've been there six months. Um, you know, it's not like every day I'm running complex prediction tools. Um, some days I am. Um, a lot of other days it's, it's you know, what are, what are the best questions we can ask? And realistically, it takes an immense amount of domain knowledge. Um, you know, I came on board and I was like, oh, yeah, I know football. And, I mean, I played football in college, and there's still lots of folks internally that know football immensely more than I do. And so being able to leverage their knowledge of football, their knowledge of how teams and players behave, um, I think is really important. And so it's more about the questions, I think, than the, the actual. Um, you know, and, re- and realistically, like we've talked about, the data is there now. The data is, that's going to be our data. Um, my guess is that's going to be our data for the next five to ten years. The data is not going to get any better. Um, it's more about asking better questions.
0: Mm-hmm. Terrifically interesting. We're talking to Michael Lopez. Michael is the director of data and analytics at the NFL. He is an adjunct professor now at In Statistics at Skidmore. He's been in this new position for about six months. Um, I want to come back to something you said earlier and just have you emphasize it because I think it's one of the top line messages, and we don't hear it from the horse's mouth quite as often as as we are this morning. You said you said kind of kind of emphatically. There's no question that motion tracking is where the, where the field, league is going. Like that's where stats is going. Can you elaborate that just a little bit? Why are you so sure that this, like and, and, and the one motivation for this, teams out there or analysts out there, guys who want to get into the field, they are making choices. It's a big investment to actually get to know how to deal with motion tracking data. It's really hard. The methods aren't proven. takes a while to get up to speed. So what motivation would you give them for making that investment?
4: Sure. Well, I mean, I think the fact that for, you know, basically since the early 2000s, the, the the play-by-play data that sort of says, uh, A. Rogers, half-short left, D. Adams uh, for a 12-yard gain, you can get from that the yards after catch, you can get from that uh, who made the tackle. Um, you know, but with that data, you don't know the linemen on the play. You don't know who the other receivers were. Uh, unless you had scouts data, you don't know what the route was run. Um, so... Our static play-by-play data, I think, you know, in fairness, you know, wasn't, you know, wasn't that illustrative. And so the questions that were often tackled, whether it was, you know, teams should go forward and on fourth downs more, or teams should pass more, but so those are very general questions. Um, whereas all the stuff about who's on the field, the route that was run, uh, the coverage, the the defensive type, personnel. Um, you know, certain schemes from the offensive line, that can all be gleaned from the, the player tracking data. And so when you have that information, um, you're able to answer, you know, if, if particularly when you're on a team. The scouts are, or the you know the, the coaches are often asking, like, you know, what are they in? You know, instead of looking at the film and guessing, you right. can literally look at your, your algorithm and say, oh, you know, we're pretty sure they were in this. And we can say how often they were in that, and we can say how successful they were in that. So I think that's the, the, biggest, the biggest attraction.
0: Mm-hmm, hmm Very interesting. The other thing you said I want to come back to is that despite having, you know, worked on this stuff for years and despite having played football at the college level, you still are surrounded by people who know a lot more about football than you do. We, you know, we're, we're often proselytizing good methods and analytics and talking about how much the world can learn from us, but we have to remember that we have to learn from the world as well, especially in these any given application. you got to really understand the situation and the context and the details, and a good analyst kind of immerses himself or herself in that. Can you give us an example of something that you've learned about football that makes you a better analyst since you've been in the NFL offices the last six months?
4: Yeah. Well, I mean, I think one of the things that the league office is always interested in is, like, how could our rules, you know, make the game as strong as possible? And so, you know, quite, you know, one of the main rule changes this past year is that um, there were some changes to the kickoff. And so on kickoff...
0: Michael, that didn't come um, through. There were some changes where?
4: Uh, sorry, on the kickoffs. So okay. The, the sort of changes to where teams, uh, teams return flex where they can align. And so, you know, one of the questions is how have teams, you know, adapted to that? And, you know, my initial thought would be like, well, we can look at how fast players are traveling, we can look at where the balls are kicked to, um, and then, you know, we have coaches that say, well, you know, quite literally, if the, we're gonna, you're going to change the rules, we might change our personnel. And so, you know, I might be looking at, you know, our players traveling faster, but realistically, if you're a coach, you might be putting more wide receivers or more defensive backs on your kickoff coverage team. Mm-hmm. So yeah, they are probably traveling faster, but it had nothing to do with the fact that there was a rule change, or at least... You know, it had nothing to do with the, the rules themselves. It had to do with coaches changing their style. And so sort of understanding what, how coaches are going to to react to certain rules and how they're going to sort of best use their personnel to take advantage of it, yep. I think that was something that, you know, that's one example of like, oh, yeah, I mean, I guess I could certainly see that, that teams would want to do that now that we have these rules.
0: Right. And they're also kind of one step ahead of you, right? So we play these, like, one-step games, and these guys who are in there and been in there are steps ahead of us. They're playing the more equilibrium version of it. Michael, more generally, how have you learned from people around you there? Like, what has been your strategy? You come in, you have a lot to offer, of course, but you want to learn as well. So how do you, how do you manage it? How have you managed your time, and how have you built those relationships or tried to learn as much as possible over the last six months?
4: Yeah, I mean, I think that's, I think that's one area that I wasn't necessarily used to. I mean, I'm, I'm coming from a position where, you know, realistically, when you're in academics, you maybe don't have a boss, that you know, you're really, you know, maybe you have a department head or maybe you have a dean, but those aren't conversations that you're having on a weekly basis. Or, so or, there's an yeah, immense right. amount of freedom. And yep. I still have lots of freedom. I still have projects that I can start that I can lead. I, but there's also sort of the idea that, you know, in academics, a lot of the things we have don't have deadlines. You know, here there's deadlines, there's meetings. And yeah, maybe I could probably come up with a better algorithm. But at the end of the day, you know, it's it's a job and I can't spend six months trying to find the perfect tool to look at kickoff coverage teams when realistically maybe sort of static, you know, basic, you know, basic statistics will get me pretty far. Yeah. And so I've sort of had to get used to sort of, you know, maybe, um, you know, not always being perfect with everything, making sure everything's accurate. However, you know, not necessarily backtesting everything is maybe as much as as I would have for an academic paper. And that's partly just given time constraints. Yeah. You know, sometimes questions come out on Monday and we need questions by Wednesday. And when that's the case, you know, realistically, you have to do some of the best you can in that time period.
0: Yeah. Let's flip it around and ask how they've responded to you. You know, sometimes a team will bring an analyst in and it was, you know, someone, you know, two tiers down and off to the left that hired that analyst. And the powers that be aren't really interested in talking to the analyst. And it's years before they have any credibility in the organization. What has, What is the attitude on Park Avenue towards analytics and towards the Michael Lopez's of the world? How have they treated you you know are you, are you having lunch with the big boys yet how, how, what does that look
4: like <laughs> uh, there's big boys and there's big girls too there's um, there's uh, it's, it's they're, honestly they're just asking more questions it's more you know we're uh, football's a very week to week thing um, you know, the games happen basically on Sundays and Monday and Tuesday are there are questions and some weeks we've got lots of questions Other weeks maybe there are fewer questions but there's, there's there's not an endless uh, there's um, there's not a short list of questions that I have to answer. Okay. Um, some of them are maybe long term things. Some of them are short term things that come up. After. Uh, but that's kind of the idea is that um, they're, they're they're asking lots of questions and they're asking lots of really good questions. Mm-hmm. And so I think um, you know from my perspective it's it's sort of a, a good opportunity to, to be able to answer those things with data yeah. um, and. Like I said earlier, some of those questions are on field products. Some of them are, are things that are, you know, tangentially related to so officiating, health and safety, long term future, college teams, um, you know, like all those types of things that like sort of understand football. Yep. I think everyone just wants to answer.
0: Yep. Are you watching more NFL or less NFL now that you're in the in the league?
4: Uh well I'm not you're sure busier. if I've been watching more before <laughs> oh, is given that right? what I was watching before I came on. Okay. So, its sort of the both you know, yeah I, I, there have been a couple Thursday and Monday night games where before I maybe would have gone to bed and now I'm kind of staying up to make sure that the ending is exciting
0: what is your you can you can confess this no one else is listening who's your rooting interest I know you don't pull equally for all 32
4: teams uh, honestly my rooting interest is that the quarterbacks stay healthy come and, on <laughs> no
0: Michael you can't become a politician who where did you who uh, did you grow up who did you grow up pulling for?
4: No, I grew up rooting for the Patriots, so I grew up outside Boston. Yeah, okay. my, um, my dad is still a high school football coach outside Boston and uh, has been a high school football coach for 41 years, so pretty ingrained with the, 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 the football in Massachusetts. Okay. So I grew up a Patriots fan, and that's my preference now. But, you know, like I said, it's, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sort of rooting for all 32 teams, and I, I will also tell teams that I'm also rooting for the ones that are quickest to adapt analytics because there's a franchise <laughs> size that it's going to make better-informed decisions using data, that I want to support that team.
2: So, Michael, just one quick question. Since you brought up the Patriots and Tom Brady and everything like that, do you guys at the league study at all longevity of players and positions? Is that something that you guys would study so that you can provide kind of information to all the teams?
4: Uh, that's a great question. It's not something we've looked at yet, um, but I think long-term that those are the questions we want to be able to ask. Um, in particular, we want players to be as healthy as possible and so part of the 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 way that you would look at Tom Brady is other than one year he's been really healthy and so maybe there is something to whatever that he has or maybe there's something to how he trains or how the Patriots train or how other teams train Um, I think those are the questions that we are interested in Um, any player specific things are are maybe not as not as interesting but I think you're right long term um, those are things that that the league office would want to know in particular to share with our teams.
0: All right. Well, listen, Michael, thank you for taking the time to visit with us. Been terrifically interesting. Wish you the best with this work. We really do believe in it and think it's going to advance football and football thinking. So um, we really do. um, We're going to be following you, but wish you the best with it. That was Michael Lopez. Michael is director of data and analytics at the NFL. He is a adjunct stats prof at Skidmore, where he was for years before taking this job. He's been there for about six months now. And it's um, going to be interesting to see what happens in the NFL because of people like him they're bringing into the
2: office. I loved his answer about asking the right questions because 90% of the time that's what it turns out to be, and okay. that's what people with analytics do. They just kind of look at problems in a more structured and a different way. So I, I loved his answer about that. It
0: kind of kind of challenged you in a way. It wasn't. It, well, you, you gave him A, B, or C, and he,
2: and he B gave B or you D. C. Yeah. <laughs> that's okay. Next time I'm going to ask A, B, C, or D.
0: There you go. All right, that has been three quarters of Wharton Moneyball. We still have a quarter to go. Come back and join us after the break Welcome back <laughs> Welcome back to Warden
2: Moneyball
3: Music's been on point this morning. (laughs) No, I thought
2: the point of this was, who are you going to trust? You're going to trust (laughs) Wharton Analytics. You're going to trust Wharton Moneyball.
3: That's right. That's
0: right. We are, uh, what kind of busters would we be? Myth busters? Conventional wisdom busters? Narrative busters? How does that count? Narrative busters, maybe?
3: And Total busters? I, I don't of know. Anecdotal yeah, busters? Yeah. Not, none of these yeah. are quite no, as No, no, we, we, we got we, to we wordsmith a little bit here.
0: That's Danielle Bruno, of course, bringing us up out of the bottom of the hour. Danielle is our longtime sound engineer and vital to the show. Many thanks to Danielle. This is Kate Massey hosting Wharton Moneyball this morning with my buddies Shane Jensen and Eric Bradlow. Audie is in the classroom, but some combination of us are here every Wednesday morning. You can join the conversation, one eight four four wharton one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. Or give us an email, businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Or hit us on Twitter, at WMoneyBall is our Twitter account, at WMoneyBall. We follow all of the world of sports analytics up there. Just off the phone with Michael Lopez, of Stats by Lopez fame, the NFL poached him from the academic world, and now he's working for the man and helping bring those guys along, especially with motion tracking data. Fascinating to hear about his job. That was a fun conversation. There's other NFL bouncing around. We're going to close the show with NFL. But before we get there, let's talk about the college game. Anything, we saw the rankings came up. We, we talked about that a little bit. Not too surprising. Obviously, I have a monster game, one of the biggest games of the season this weekend. Alabama's going into Baton Rouge to play LSU. Eric, you've been on LSU all year long. I'm not sure where that love came. I hadn't heard you talk about LSU before this year, but you've been all about them. Do you think there's any chance here?
2: No, I don't think I don't think there's <laughs> there much. Must be some chance. Well, there's some chance. I mean, as implied by a 14 point spread, I don't know what Massey Peabody has. it. maybe it's somewhere around two right, touchdowns, right on 14. Yeah, okay, exactly. right on 14. So is is that a no? Is that 85 15 somewhere yeah. like that? So I think that's about where it is. I mean, to beat Alabama, here's what would have to happen in that game. I think uh, Alabama has a real offense now. We know for years they've had the best defense in football, or by most measures. Um, They now have a real offense. So it's going to come down to, can LSU create two or three turnovers in the game? In other words, it's one of those situations where, um, where does 80, you know, we could get into this debate, where does like an 85%, 15% chance come from? If they play 100 games, I think Alabama wins more than 85% of those games. Oh, really? I do. If they play 100 games... Then
0: where, where do you, what do you make of 15% then?
2: I think there's a lot of randomness in the fact... As a matter of fact, LSU... If you told LSU right now, here's how you can do it. You can play Alabama one game, and if you win, you win. Or you can play them best of 100... Not best of 100, 100 games, and if you win 15 of them, you win. Which do you think LSU would take? Let's imagine they could go to the football playoff, and you give them two offers: play Alabama once, and you win, you go; play Alabama a hundred times, and you only have to win fifteen of them. <laughs> are
3: they allowed to in this sort of scenario? Are they allowed to learn game to game? Because yeah. it's it's not really a fair. Compa- it's not okay, really let, a... all
2: right. Let's all right. So I'm assuming the answer at the moment is no. no. Yeah, right. be a, so no. The answer is no. Yeah. I think. I I don't know about you. I don't think there's any debate whatsoever. I think they want to play them once and hope for the inherent randomness that happens within any single game.
0: Okay, so I I like that answer, and I share that intuition, but I still haven't reconciled your dismissing 15% as actually representing the probability in the same way that most like, people you're, you're,
3: you're, you're kind of deviating from the usual long run. For, I mean, this is Correct. how we interpret probabilities, is, is the scenario just so outlined, So tell, what, do you,
0: yeah, what, what does it mean if it's not that? So, and what's...
2: Yeah, so, yeah, so okay. maybe the way I'm thinking about it is, maybe, it's, maybe it still gives an average of 15%. I'm thinking of there being, like, a bimodal distribution of the way this game could go. So I'm thinking one way the game goes is, both teams play well, both teams play to their expectation, and Alabama wins the game by 14 points. That's one way. Because that's what the Massey Peabody or most statistical models would say. If both teams play as we expect them to play, that's what's going to happen. Then there's the other hump of the game, which is the game goes unexpectedly. And maybe already the 14-point yeah, spread is Eric, taking that would, into why account. Why would you
0: go bimodal? Why would it just be two smooth distributions of possible draws from Alabama's performance and a smooth distribution of possible draws of LSU's performance? And the thing is, it's not you know they're overlapped they don't overlap that much yeah. so if alabama has a bad draw and lsu has a good draw you don't need bimodal <clears throat> to get Well the that. only
3: reason to yeah. ha- maybe like have it like be a little bit more discretized or le- less less smooth is you know particular discrete events like like major injury That's... or something like that like the alabama quarterback gets you know knocked out in the first quarter or something like that and okay. all of a sudden that changes the essentially the game the underlying distribution has a less smooth okay. shift to it okay I and mean, also, that would be the only oh, argument
2: maybe, for... Well, or, or, Shane, I don't know if you would agree if this is as discreet as you might want, but, I mean, it's going to take... Let's imagine a discrete event is a significant turnover in the game. Mm. So if that discrete yeah. event happens... Key penalty. A key penalty, a pick six that, you know, two throws against, and all of a sudden it's returned seven yeah, points the other but way. Yeah, that's
0: just another source of variance. I mean, what I want to do is, I want to say you're going to get these two draws of underlying team performance, and then you're going to get draw around the, around and the actual distribution the expected. So you
2: hit, you hit on the point that it's not about I disagree with you. I, I agree. It's another source of variance, but I think it's going to – this is my opinion. It's an opinion. It's going to take this kind of abrupt, discrete event. For me to construct a counterfactual where LSU wins the game, it's going to take not just draws from each of their distribution. It's going to take some discrete, significant event for them to win. That's oh. just my view.
0: All right. So, uh, also in the Southeast Conference, a big game on the eastern side. Georgia goes into Kentucky. No one would have known before the season started that that was going to be like a division-deciding game. But that's what it looks like.
2: And where do you guys have – Georgia has to be favored.
0: With Georgia, we have like number three in the country and only about a touchdown behind Clemson, so way up there. And then Kentucky, you know, we think they're okay. Number 25. And where is the game being
2: played? In Kentucky? In Kentucky. So, so I'm gonna, can I make a prediction? I'm not looking at the screen here. Yeah. I'm going to say Massey Peabody has, uh, at Kentucky, Georgia favored by six, five or six.
0: Oh, no, yes. This is a big, we see a much bigger difference between these teams. We're not yet full on believers in Kentucky. So, on a neutral field, we'd favor them by almost 16, 15, 16. Wow. Points. So, we're going we're gonna to favor them by 13 or you know probably 13 points or so so almost two touchdowns now we've got priors on Kentucky that are keeping them back a little bit but you have priors for a reason you know so yeah. you have to decide do we have the right prior still but
2: we you just have it about a touchdown more than I had i thought uh, it would be 9 or 10 points but it actually is interesting that even between Three, it shows you how much – fact, you talked about this, Kate, a few weeks ago, how there's a number of teams that have kind of separated themselves from the oh, field. Yeah, Alabama definitely. separated themselves from everybody. But in some sense, if, if you mo- ask most people, what's going to be the spread of a game on a neutral field between the number three team in the country and roughly number 10, most people would say, oh, 16 points. Like, well, what? How is well, that about three and 10, 16 points?
0: Well, to be fair, there are number 25, not number 10. Okay, but, well, but, that's a big difference. But, your, but your point is, is a good one still that the, we really see tiers – in the college football landscape right now. So it's not just Alabama. Clemson's right up there with them. So, yes, we th- we have Alabama at the highest number we've had anybody ever since we've been running college football. So their peak college football team, if you're on the ELO of sorts, mm-hmm. you, know, you compare across eras. In 10 years of doing this, 11 years of doing this, they're our top-rated team right now. But Clemson's only a point and a half, two points behind them. They're They're, they're that close. I think that's much more competitive than most people think. Then there's another tier, that Georgia-Michigan-Oklahoma tier. Very solid and very little separation between them. And then you drop down to another another big step down to Ohio state and then you drop down to just a morass of teams. I mean from our number 7 team Penn State down to you know our number 15 drop it all the way down to I don't know drop it down to 19 20 and we talk about the next 10 or 12 teams are barely more than a few. Well field this
2: board. has to be wrong. The undefeated UCF isn't even on there. How is that possible?
0: <laughs> yeah, we're we're not super friendly to the group of 5. It's not I don't think we're out to get them it's just that we we we're there's a predictive model and if we had UCF play in Georgia instead of Kentucky play in Georgia we'd have UCF underdog by about two touchdowns i mean that's just look and, you and have by I the think, way by the way vegas agrees with us i think
2: there's no problem with ucf being the best of the what called top six or i forget what they call those games you know as long as they make the top 12 they'll be in one of these super six games or whatever new Year's, new Year's six new year six games and that's about where they belong and mm-hmm. give them their shot against you know i don't know who it is michigan wisconsin or whoever they're going to play and maybe like last year they win the game maybe they don't and that's fine
0: so some other games to look at around the country uh west Virginia's going down to Texas. Shane, Shane. Yeah, might I'll be, be in Austin, Texas. Shane's for thinking that. about going to that game.
3: Not, for, not to that game. I'll be there for a wedding. You'll be but for I'll, be, You'll I'll be, be in the midst of uh, the party. It'll partying. be festive. It'll yeah. be a festive
0: day, and hopefully, it'll be festive. Yeah. Penn State is going to Michigan. Penn State's been struggling, but we still think they're a strong, a strong team. This is one of the big hurdles Michigan has left. Of course, they've got Ohio State at the end of the season, but they have to clear a few between now and then. And there. how
2: do you see that? You guys see Michigan favored by how much in that game? We love Michigan. We have Michigan as solidly this this,
0: this tier of contenders just below the, the big guys. We have them the fourth best in the country. We've had them up there. We never really lost faith in them. This is one of our, our successes for the season so far. But we kind of feel the same way about Penn State. We've not been down as down on Penn State. Penn State as the rest of the as the rest of the country's been. On a neutral field would make it about seven. And so Michigan's going to get an extra boost, you know, pushing up to a 10-point game or so. So we expect the Wolverines to do it. And we kind of hope, because we got some chips piled up on those guys. Uh, One of the sneaky games that you ought to be keeping an eye on is OU at Texas Tech. So OU, again, one of those super solid teams right next to Georgia and Michigan. Tech, you know, Tech has been flirting with like the mid-30s with us all year. But they that's really high for them. They usually have one of the best offenses in the country, and then they struggle defensively. They've had the same defensive coordinator now for three or four years, and he's really got it kind of finally coming together out there. We have them, you know, big underdogs to OU, but one of the strangest places to play in the country, one of the most unpredictable. You're looking for these weird events to happen, Eric, and Baton Rouge isn't a bad place for it, but Lubbock, is, Lubbock on Saturday night, Lubbock on Halloween weekend, Lubbock against OU, it is going to be... An interesting place to be.
2: So are we just... I know... I think we've talked about this before in the air, but are you at the point where... You know, a lot of people talk about expanding the playoffs to beyond four teams, but are you starting to believe that this is starting to be like playoff time? Like, you look at the LSU-Alabama game, that's like a playoff game. You look at Georgia-Kentucky, that's like a playoff
3: game. You look at Oklahoma-Texas Tech, you know, I'm not well, saying... Oh, and by oh, that, you quality. kind of mean that the team that loses is out? Yeah, I kind of... Because yeah, Alabama-LSU is not... I mean... If Alabama loses, is not out. Yeah, that's right? right. That's right.
2: No, but I just meant we're getting to a place in the season where you know we can't just focus on the f- two playoff games as the playoff games. Like you know, certainly, right. We're getting to a point. Penn State, Michigan. That would be you know, if, if the, Michigan loses, they're probably out at yeah, this point. So yeah. now we're we're getting mm-hmm. to a point where these games are you know even extra meaningful if you'd that's like. That's
0: right. I, I agree. And and one of the, one of the points kind of against the expanding to an 8 team playoff would be that these games would have a little less meaning and we're already worried a little bit about games having less meaning as soon as you fall off of the four game and so there's some concern that this dynamic would be lost if 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 more teams could get in but you know and just so i know we've not we've
2: spoken about football both in the first half hour and this one and we've not mentioned the pac 12 at all are they Is it like there's no even reason to talk about them? Like there is no Pac-12 team that's likely to make it, or where are we standing there? So
0: almost everybody has two losses, and all the preseason favorites have two losses. I mean, Stanford and Washington are playing this weekend. It was going to be the marquee game in the conference. It certainly was going to be the Northern marquee game, and neither team are ranked. But Washington State is the surprise team out there, and they only have one loss. You might think that we'd be talking about them more. They'd be more in the conversation. We we personally just don't believe much in them yet. We still have them down there in the kind of Texas Tech range. But, you know, the Priors could be holding them back. It's certainly Mike Leach's best team since he's been up there.
2: So if things break well and they stay as a one-loss team, it's not impossible. Not impossible.
0: I mean, they, they need some other one-loss teams to to fall away, but it's not like impossible.
2: Like Oklahoma being one of them, wouldn't yeah, hurt. Michigan
0: wouldn't be—you know, knock those teams off, and maybe we'll start talking about Washington State. But they still have their big rivalry game against Washington at the end of the season. We still believe in Washington. I mean, like— There will
2: be a Pac-12 championship game? There will
0: be a Pac-12—now, we used to think that would be USC— Probably looks like Utah now, so it's just the the whole world out there is just so different. So it's kind of fun, but it's not nationally relevant yet. All right, that's enough on college football. Good, appreciate you indulging me. We need to talk a little about about the NFL. It's oh, an incredible we, slate. Before coming up. we look at the slate, anything at a high level that we've seen. So the Eagles went to London and got that win. Yeah, KC keeps on winning. The Rams squeezed one out over the pack late.
2: That was such a dis from a fan's point of view. that was such a disappointing end to that game, because whether I like the Rams or not doesn't matter. You wanted to see Aaron Rodgers with the football with a chance to win that game. And Ty Montgomery takes it out of the end zone. Of course he gets traded immediately afterwards, but gets, takes it out of the end zone, fumbles the ball, and you know, they lose 29 to 27. So who didn't want to see Aaron Rodgers with the football with 2 minutes left on the clock with a field goal to win the game? I mean, we all wanted to see that. I wanted as a fan, you just wanted to see could the Rams defense hold up? It was just exciting. To think about
0: so, that happening, so you, so you, so you cut that guy straight away. You well,
2: just, they did. Yeah, I know,
3: and they did. Well, I, I thought. I mean, I, I, I like it only in the sense that that game actually was. What was the most important part of that entire game? Is special teams for the first Correct. half of that game. The most, the best player on the Rams was their punter. He was throwing passes. He was. Is that right? Nailing him deep within like, you know, one or, you know one, the one or two yard line. I mean, he was the one that set up that safety, for example, that really changed the That's momentum correct. of the game in the first half. And the other thing, of course, that caught my eye before we get to specific games,
2: you know, it relates to a game this week, but not one I think we'll talk that much about, but I saw the end of that Buccaneers-Bengals game. And look, Fitzmagic, Fitzmagic came huh? in there, he throws a 70-yard bomb to Mike Evans, perfect pass, Then they're down eight with a minute left. He throws a remarkable fourth and, by the way, fourth and three pass from the 15. They could have gone for the first down. He throws this ball to O.J. Howard through three defenders. Then they're still down two. On the two-point conversion, he dodges like three or four guys to throw a ball right to the receiver, to Godwin, I think. So he brings them back. They scored 18 points, I think it was, or six, at least 16. They got a field goal, a 7, and an 8. 18 points in the fourth quarter in like nine minutes of his play. Yeah. At some point, and obviously playing this week against the Panthers, all of my Tampa Bay friends say, despite Jameis Winston being the number one overall pick in the draft, you can't play him, and here's why. So, uh, just, you can't uh, play before him. Before you
0: tell us that, yeah. I mean, I have to be struck by the fact that we had this conversation a month ago and we were going exactly the opposite yeah. direction, right? It was like, no, don't believe in Fitzpatrick yet. Winston's still the guy. All the evidence suggests. What so we what's have changed?
3: Well, I, no, I mean, I don't actually know what you guys have in, in Jameis Winston. I think we know what we have in Fitz, we right? do. Fitzpatrick. He's just a high-variance player. He'll be excellent or he'll be terrible and he'll just kind of go back and forth between
2: the two. Yeah, let's be clear. The only quote-unquote terrible game he had was the Bear game where the Bucks lost like forty eight to ten or something mm-hmm. like that? The Steeler game, which he started, and yeah, lost, I mean that was
3: one where he was terrible for half the game.
2: He was terrible for half the game, not the whole game. He still put up twenty seven points yeah. against a, a quote unquote good Steeler team. He, you know, so he's not
3: actually, he's been bad one single yeah. game. But if you needed a player to throw four picks in a game, it would probably, you'd <laughs> predict it would be Fitzpatrick. I, assuming Nathan Peterman isn't playing. Well, he is playing this and week. And he is, and against he is Chicago. And he is playing this week. Thoughts and prayers I just for that think, guy.
2: I just think it's an interesting situation they face because this is the reason why everyone's saying it has to do with more with the salary. If Jameis Winston starts a game, let's say he starts another game and he gets injured. Well, you can't cut an injured player. So he's due twenty five million dollars next year if he's on the roster. Twenty five million. So that's why many people believe you'll never see Jameis Winston wow. play again for the Bucs or that he'll be number three on the depth chart. Wow. 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 Very
0: interesting. All right. So having talked a little bit about last weekend, let's turn to this coming weekend. <laughs>
4: Moneyball
0: matchups. Alright, Eric Bradlow, tell us what you see, what you think, what games you want to talk about. What well a great. I'll, I'll slate, talk about man. one
2: specific game in a second, but let me just say I think there are six fantastic games in the NFL this week. I think Pittsburgh at Baltimore is a fantastic football game. I think Atlanta at Washington is an important game, a very important football game. I think the Chargers at Seattle is an important game. I think the Rams at New Orleans is an important game. I think Green Bay at New England is an important game. And, you know, even the Monday night game, which is Tennessee at Dallas, is not an unimportant game for both of those teams. And those are not unreasonable NFL teams. Um, the one I'm going to talk about the most is Rams at New Orleans. I, that's a really fascinating game. Um, I think uh, we're. I mean, I don't think. Here's the way I think about it. They both, by every measure, have great offenses. Yeah. There's no doubt about it. Mark, Drew Brees may be having the best season he's ever had in I don't his career. Under for that game is I, it's got to be like sixty. 60 points, point. It's got to be sixty points. I think we're just going to find out if the Rams' defense is any good. And I think that's what's going to. If look, if the Rams look, I know New Orleans' defense is no good because the Buccaneers played them in Week One and Fitz Magic put up 48 points against them. The Ra- the New Orleans defense is not particularly good. The thing that would stop the Rams, in my view, from winning the Super Bowl is if their defense is actually terrible. Right. So I'm really interested in that Rams New Orleans game. Even if Rams win, if it's fifty to forty
3: eight, I'm not going to be impressed. Yeah, and I think I think I I personally think the Rams are going to are going to take that game. I do not think their defense is terrible. I I mean they looked a little pedestrian against Aaron Rodgers but who doesn't and and so no I I'm, I'm going for the Rams in that one so definitely. that's,
0: that's Massey Peabody teams one and two the top not yeah. just top in NFC top all around but our, we're right on top of the line line is one and a half and we're like one one point two or something what else you got what's another game that you like
3: well what I, I don't know I'd be curious to see what Massey Peabody has, has to say about Pittsburgh at Baltimore
0: well that's the game I'm most interested in yeah. and because we're going got a group of guys going down that's there going to take it I've never been to a big rivalry game in the NFL and that's and look, a great
2: look, stadium to go to
0: it's a Great stadium, but it's also like this great rivalry. And so um, it should be a lot of fun. We we still like Baltimore. I mean, it's just absurd. We just can't shake them. We have Baltimore still number 4 in the league, Pittsburgh number 9. So you can see where that's going. We have them about a 3.5-point favorite. Of course, Vegas has them a 3-point favorite. So you look at those records, you don't think. You look at what Pittsburgh's done lately versus what Baltimore's done lately. You don't see 3 points. And, and we happen to agree with Vegas on that. We see 3.5
2: well, it's an incredibly meaningful football game. Yeah. Incredibly meaningful. May actually decide the division. So,
0: so let's give Shane one. We the Green Bay Arle- New Orleans yeah. game is surely the game you're most interested. Yeah, in. Right? Yeah, I
3: am, and I mean, you know, I, of course, I think it's going to be that that one is also, I think, going to be a very high scoring, you know, battle of probably still the two best quarterbacks in the NFL.
0: What do you make of the fact that Green Bay looks a little? They dealt some players at the deadline. You yeah, know, they you lose know, I, this game and they start dealing players at the deadline.
3: Yeah, that's I I find that a little interesting. I I don't know why they would. I mean, I still see Green Bay as as kind of you know a playoff certainly a playoff they just certainly went contender. With the Rams, they yep. could have beat the Rams. Yep, and and so you know they've now been described as sellers. I don't really get that, so I, I don't I do you, don't know what's going on. The line
0: that. is six. What do you think?
2: Which side you got it?
3: Well, I think it's going to be close than that. I think it's going to come down to like you know whoever has the ball last and like wow. last second field goal. I'm, t-
2: I'm going to go by my theorem. If New England's at home and they're favored by less six by less than seven, I'm going with the Pats. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so it's we, not a we, bad move,
3: historically.
0: We make it seven and a quarter, so we're a little bit on the Pat side of things, but it should be fun. You, you can't not want to watch Rodgers going, yeah. into, going into that stadium. All right, guys, that has been another episode of Wharton Moneyball. We do this every Wednesday, two hours Wednesday morning. This has been Cade Massey, Shane Jensen, and Eric Bradlow for the last hour. Audie was in here in addition to us for the first hour. Daniel Bruno on the board, as she usually is. Maddie Datz running the show over there in the boss man chair. Appreciate you guys listening. We'll be back next week. Between now and then, enjoy your sports. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.